Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Action Radio. This is Greg Penglis coming to you from the historic district of downtown Milton on the banks of the beautiful Blackwater River. And now let's get into Action Radio. Yeah, it's typical around here. <laughs> typical what goes on before the show. I got one hand on my, my big uh, you know, stainless steel water cup. I got my other hand on a mouse checking my last email. Uh, just got a notice from Brianna. Uh, so she'll be joining us here in just a bit. Uh, it's <laughs> This is fascinating. Yesterday, if you missed it, I had a very spicy discussion with Warren, who does Wake Up New Orleans. Uh, so he is he is to the left of leftists. <laughs> I like Warren. I really do. But we don't agree on anything. And so it was a really fun show. If you get a chance to listen to it yesterday, Warren and I had way too much fun. Um, but there's a lot of things that's interesting when you're debating leftists. And uh, Brianna's on now, so I'll, I'll tell her this real quickly, that uh, they'll start to say things. Uh, you can tell when they're, they're losing or they're flustered because they'll say that's just your opinion or, or those are just talking points or you don't know what you're talking about or, you, you know, you're, let, me, let me explain this to you. <laughs> this, I just start laughing, right? So, uh, so Brianna, if you get a chance to listen to uh, uh, yesterday's show with, uh, with Warren, uh, it, it, it's like my little tutorial on how to debate leftists. But uh, it's interesting. He made some interesting points. There's some things we agree on, uh, especially if you listen to the first hour. Um, and Warren came on in the third hour. It was, really, it was really quite a report. But anyway, Brianna's here. Let's get her theme. Let's get going with, uh, with government inquiry and see to where we are going to inquire. Oh. Wrong place. It's under G. I got I to I gotta structure my things better. Some, I think they're under names for some and, uh, and reports for others. So there we go. Let me see. Ah, there it is. Okay. Be right back. She started as a guest on Action Radio, courtesy of our Constitution reporter, Amber Kemper. Both Brianna and Amber are graduates of Patriot Academy, a place where young folks get to practice writing and advocating legislation and being legislators in a mock session. Brianna immediately impressed all of us as someone we wanted on the show with her own report. With an insightful mind, asking and taking on complex questions, and a growing skill in sarcasm and satire, plus her study of government, history, the Constitution, and our founding, all of her skills and knowledge combined into something pretty incredible here on Action Radio. And now, the Government Inquiry Report with Brianna Cannon. Once again, making you sound really good. <laughs> I really like that intro. Good morning, Brianna. What's going on? What's happening? Um. Well, today I'm probably going to just use the same notes I had from last week. Um, well, that sounds good. We we, really that's that's very here. common. That's that's you know I, I think of action radio as like a fluid thing. You look at most newscasts and it's like once the once the half hour of the segment or the two minutes you get is over, that's it. They never talk about it again. Things here are completely fluid. You can bring up any topic from any week, you know, especially if we covered it, because I'd rather have the have the sequence of you know and get the get the full story down. I mean, if we can do it in one show, great. It takes two shows. Many times I have to do part shows. I'll do like one, two, sometimes three parts to a show if there's enough information on it. I think the most they did was four in the Supreme Court. Oh, but that was that was a WBY thing. But uh, you never know. Anyway, so so let's let's start last week. Recap for us. Where were we, and where are we going? Okay. Um, I actually don't think we hit like any of these except for one. <laughs> so, that, that sounds like us. So <laughs> you know, uh, digressing is is like a is like a lifestyle. I have a feeling. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. The first thing, and you, you actually also mentioned this 
um, mm-hmm. last week. And um, it's not really talked about. It's about the Teamsters strike. And supposedly that whenever they were striking, it was they wanted four extra sick days. Is why they were they were striking. You're talking about the railroad and workers. Instead I of think. like, I think you mean the railroad workers other than the teamsters. Yes. Unless there's a team, then there could be a teamster railroad worker union. I don't know. The teamsters actually have airline pilots. I was a teamster for for yes, several years on a job I was on, so I'm pretty familiar with the teamsters. Um, and so, you know, you might ask, what was a conservative doing working for the teamsters? I believe in private unions, and we can talk about that too. But tell me about the about what you've got on the strike, and the sick days. Yeah, it was it was the railroad one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. It was for four sick days, but instead of giving them four more sick days, um, the government paid $36 billion to them from their, like, $3 trillion COVID fund or whatever. Wow. Um, and they were kind of, like, threatening their jobs with it. So that so, was kind uh, of... I'm trying to think. So the government, what did the government, let's go into this a little bit because I'm a little confused. What did the government exactly pay for? Where, where, where did they send the money to the, the railroad workers union? Was it a benefit fund, a workman's comp thing? Or what, where exactly did that, that $36 billion go? I don't actually know. I, I mean, I know it was, you know, to, well, what they claim was to keep it running and stuff. Because uh-huh. It's like critical if they like will shut down or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. No, I'm just curious. And like I say, like, so, like every question, it, it, sometimes they require research. In fact, you talk to Derek Park, my financial uh, reporter. He, I, I drive him crazy because I always ask him things. Greg, I don't know that. Let me go look it up for next week. Okay, fine. <laughs> so this goes on all the time. <laughs> um, this is uh, – I got a question for you. Uh, but now the, the railroad workers, that's a government union, uh, I'm pretty sure, right? Because these are – especially the Amtrak portion of it. And I don't know how much of the freight lines. I think the freight lines are still private. But do you have a breakdown of, of how much of the strike was, uh, or do the Railroad Workers Union represent both? Do they have like a government side and a private side? How much did you get into it? But... Um, not that much. <laughs> um... <laughs> See, I told you, impossible <laughs> questions. Okay. Well, uh, which begs the bigger question, can one union represent both government uh, and private sector workers, I think they can. I think that the Teamsters has, yeah. has like a government sector union. Okay. So tell me, what, tell me what you found, though. Let's go with that first. Yeah, that that was kind of like what I was wanting to know with this. Um, okay. Basically, like, understand it a little bit more. Because, I mean, I mean, is it really like instead of just giving them forces, they really just decided to give them billions of dollars? Well, that's where it went. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, was it a payoff to union leadership? We're missing something here. Well, I think we are. Well, let's let's use our deductive reasoning powers and let's figure it out. So, so the workers want sick days. Now, sick days make sense because if you work when you're sick and you're driving a train, you can cause a catastrophic accident, causing billions of dollars and potentially costing lives. So, it makes sense to not work if you're sick. It makes no sense to force workers to work when they're sick. On the other hand, if they have three weeks of sick days, then that's like a vacation. That's like a paid vacation on top of their paid vacation. I don't care if they have five yeah. weeks of, sick, uh, of vacation. I don't care what it is, but, it, it just, but it's an interesting thought. You know, so it, it, but four days does not seem like a lot of sick days to me. It really what, doesn't. What do you think? Yeah. 
Well, was was anybody in your reading of this, was anybody asking the question uh, that the news was reporting, that uh, the workers are saying, wait, they make us work whether we're sick or not. I mean, that to me is is dangerous. That's that's criminally negligent. Uh, that that kind of stuff should not go on, even if they don't get paid for the sick day. They should they have to be able to take sick days off. What do you think? I agree. Yeah. Hmm. I'm gonna. I'm looking up like any more information on this okay. part right now. Yep. I'm using like key words. <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, I do a lot of that too. It's it's weird. I'll, like I said, I have. Uh, I talk about having uh, you know my right hand on on the computer mouse, my left hand on the keyboard, and I'm talking at the same time. <laughs> it's really weird. This is a great place for multitasking. So feel free. Um, well, let's. See. Uh, so, but the train strike was averted. But I think these are mostly government. Um, no, I mean, no, the private would be freight lines. Anyway, the government, uh, well, here's a question for you, too. Do you think the government should have intervened the branded insurrection, despite the fact that an illegal government, we've talked about that, but do you think the federal government has a place intervening uh, in strikes? Um, I think, like, or in labor negotiations. it really depends on who's having the strike. Is it, like, an actual, like, government, um, is entity the right word for this? Uh, that sounds good. No, I mean, yeah, that's the perfect because, way to like, work. Yeah, because it covers everything. Yeah. Uh-huh. With any kind of like strike, is that the people are like the workers or whatever are wanting something that they're not getting, and so they uh-huh. strike in order to get it, or um, I guess haggle or whatever with the people who are like um, in charge of those things. Um, it's kind yeah, of hard host- to say boss because sometimes people's bosses aren't it. So. Um, I guess I could say the people in charge of those areas. And so in the government, mm-hmm. if there was a job like that, the government would probably need to intervene. So one thing you might want to take a look at, and this would be a fascinating study, uh, go back and listen to our Labor Day show because we went over a lot of labor history. Uh, it's something I've been interested in, starting with uh, uh, the Pullman strikes, the coal mining strikes, uh, the Pinkertons, who were World War I soldiers who were unemployed, who ended up actually shooting people who went on strike. I mean, our labor history is fascinating. And I've always been pro-private union because I know what management's done to people, treated them horribly. Um, have you ever heard of a company town, for example? Do you know what that is? A company town? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Okay. So this, um, to me, this is actually worse than slavery because a slave is not in debt. But in a company town, uh, you're expendable because there's always somebody else that can work for you. Uh, where, but uh, you're always going to debt. So whereas a, a freed slave would, would, would not have a debt to carry to the slave owner, they wouldn't have to pay the slave owner for being free. Uh, whereas if you're in a company town, you're continually going into debt because they don't pay you in money. They pay you in what they call scrip. And so this was like coupons that you could redeem at the company store. And what happened was that you would pay the company rent for your cabin. These are like usually mines, obscure places out in the distance. You would pay the company for, for your rent, and you pay the company for food. Now, the company rigged it so that you never made enough money to cover your expenses. Well, then they'd give you credit, so you go into debt. So the longer you worked in a company town, the greater your debt. You never could escape it. So the only way to escape it was to escape with the debt, which you still had to pay back because you owed the company for working there. And that is one of the, the origins of uh, the company of, of the labor unions, because they say, you can't do this. This is criminal. You can't you, you can't rig the game so that you're you're making money off workers for and you know impoverishing them. 
And of course, a lot of them died because they didn't care. There's no workman's comp. There's no health safety standards. There's no OSHA. There's no uh, regulations. There's no union to protect the workers. They're on their own. And the Supreme Court enforced that with yeah. this liberty of contract thing. It's a, it's a fascinating thing to take a look at. Sounds like it. I've never heard of that before, but it is really interesting. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not surprised that, that I Your haven't next report. heard of it, though. Don't worry. Listen, I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, you've got a long time to learn things. <laughs> don't don't think. I mean, I've I've been at this longer than you have, so don't don't think for a second that because you don't know something, that that's not what I tell you. I, I tell you these things to to you know inspire you to, when you get a chance to take a look at them. You know, that's oh, get, yeah. Is that your phone? <laughs> is that your phone ringing? Uh, that is my dad. Oh, okay. Um, tell your dad to take so his phone away. For it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, well, for let's, let's I know it has to... something. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. With the oh, money, um, mm-hmm. where it went, um, it was some sort of like a, a pension thing for them that would like, um, I think had to do with like, buddy, stop it. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. It's funny. The, the, the thing, listen, stuff happens all the time. I have gar- garbage trucks go by, they interrupt the show. And, uh, you know, uh, my friend Alan Dawson used to have tropical birds because he called us from Belize. So it, we just, we just run with it. Yeah. Um, oh, that it was going to be paying like in the future where I think mm-hmm. it was like their social security back or some, something like that. Um, for their pension plan. I'm looking this up right now. Yeah, let me bring Priyanka into the conversation here. But this is um, this is really interesting because, you know, like I say, I've always been I've been pro union. You know, to me, it's it's um, freedom of assembly that you have a situation where workers get represented by a union to counterbalance management, you know, which which bargains collectively. So in other words, they bargain as a unit. You don't go to one manager and negotiate a deal, and if that's not good enough, you go to another manager and get a different deal. It usually doesn't work that way. So the worker is the individual versus the company represented by management. So the whole purpose of unions uh, is that the worker gets representation equal to management, and the union bargains with management instead of the worker. When that doesn't work, they end up doing things like calling a strike. Uh, Piaki, you want to make a comment here? Let's get you in the conversation. Yeah, good morning. Federal government has no business getting involved with private unions. That's ridiculous. Private yeah, but I think unions it might be a government union. Uh, some of this might be. Well, do you know how much of this is government? government well, no, Amtrak is. Um, so Amtrak oh. may be, yes. <laughs> well, Amtrak was involved in the strike. That's why I'm asking is where's the split between government and private? Well, then, I think then, the freight then, lines are then private. He, then he can apply to Amtrak. And, and, yeah. and we was, if my construction company was putting a bridge up like we've done many, and uh-huh. the union, our work, went on strike. So right. what did the government do? Come in and tell them that we're going to give you uh, sick days off? Mm-hmm. you got to have well, a bridge to I get never, across the water, right? I know that the Teamsters is a private one, not a government one. But I don't know how many different ones are associated with the railroads. The reason why come Amtrak is in existence is because people wouldn't travel that way no more. So I they did. kept they create Amtrak in order to keep passenger trains uh into in existence. If not they would have went out of existence. Uh they was not profitable. Well this is a great question. I wanna I wanna get to that bit because I'm gonna talk about airline deregulation too. Uh but airlines 
And see, I've seen the whole country by train, uh, and that was. Uh, and so look at this. But let me get back to Brianna on, on the whole idea of unionizing, of the government union uh, versus the private union versus government interference in the negotiations. Pianchi's against it. Where, where, where are you? What government should do hold, hold on, is provide the National Labor Relationship Board provides arbitrators when you have an impasse between the union and the industry. And there's an impasse, and they provide arbitrators to keep both sides at the table talking. Uh, our workers went on 16-week strike in St. Louis back in the 70s. I think it was 72, I believe it was, 16 weeks. You know, government come in and say, well, we're going to give you this, that. And because they couldn't, it was none of their business. Yeah. Okay, hold on a second. I want to, I want to get Brianna into this, and then i got a couple of questions for her as well. Brianna? Yeah, so um, is the question, like, whether I'm for the um, uh Well, Pianchi's made a case, and I, I tend to agree with it, that the, that the unions, that the government should not be involved in the labor negotiations. And I'm saying it gets confusing because you've got a government union and you've got private unions with the freight companies. So it's freight plus passenger. So I'm just curious where you, from what you found, you know, where you, where you stand on that. And then I got a question on just strikes in general, because this is a big topic. Yeah. Um, as of now, like what's the knowledge that I have, I would say that if it's like um, a government union, which, you know, um, probably really risky being corrupted. But if it is like a government union, then that's something that the like, government themselves would have to interact with. Mm-hmm. But if it's not even like private unions, then I don't believe the government should interact with that. Okay. Um, do you know how strikes work? Do you know why why unions go on strike? Um, I know it's whenever like a certain demand um, isn't met that um, the workers are really wanting. Mm-hmm. So what makes a strike effective then? There's nobody to run the business or, or work the jobs. Oh, but why doesn't uh, the companies just hire more people? You know, just hire different people, just to fire everybody and, and hire a whole bunch of new people. Then, then they would, they would, you wouldn't have a strike. Well, good. Hold, on, hold on, hold on. I want to, I want to, I want to get an answer on this. I'm asking this for a specific reason. Brianna, let's get to, let's get your brain thinking about this. I mean, normally I think because it's like a really lengthy like process, you know, um, kind of rebuild like your entire staff of whatever job it is. But uh-huh. I think there's something else to it. There is. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a loaded rhetorical question. Pianchi, go ahead. Well, when companies, when unions go on strike, they put up picket lines. Uh-huh. And when they put up a picket line, other trades of the unions, whether it was delivery, supplies would not cross that picket line. Therefore, the operations of the company would come to a standstill. Also, the union members would not be making money either. Now, yeah, well, what some unions of, do is have, yeah. Yeah. some unions do have what's called strike funds, mm-hmm. where they provide some sort of payment to their union members while they're on strike and especially those that's walking picket at different operations. So they do get paid, but they're not getting paid their full uh, pay. Yeah, so there's a cost to both sides for a strike because the company is losing money because they're not 
the goods aren't being produced or services, and the, the workers are losing money because they're not working. So a strike is a, is, a, is a serious venture. It's not something to be done lightly. But as I understand the laws, at least in the private companies, they can't hire people. That the, 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 the unions call them scabs. Those are people that take the jobs of other people who are on strike. Now, I'm not sure exactly how it works. I'd have to do a little research myself. But a, start, a strike is only effective if the company cannot hire other people to replace them. So that you're making well, the company... They could right. hire other people, but other people don't cross the strike line. And okay, if, so this, uh, if we had a project and it needed uh-huh. to have a delivery of concrete, where the concrete drivers for the concrete company would not produce a batch of concrete to send out to that job. Yeah, That's where yeah. they honor picket lines. Yeah. And when I, I don't was wanna... a kid, my grandfather taught me not to cross a picket line. Right. I want to direct this back to government inquiry, if we can, because I mean, I love talking labor stuff, but I want to, we only have Brianna for a certain amount of time each week. And I want to, I want to get back to, to the whole idea of the government interfering in this. So a strike, in order to be effective, uh, the, government, the, the company cannot replace the workers while they're on strike, but it's still a serious venture. Um, now let's talk about government unions and, and the policy of the, of the whole idea of, of the, the brand insurrection interfering in this. Can government workers go on strike? Brianna. Um, well, I mean, offhand, I would say like everybody could go on strike if they wanted to. Technically. But, um, <laughs> go ahead. Honestly, I haven't ever thought about this. So of course, that's why you'd ask it, right? Of um, course. <laughs> you know that by now. <laughs> <laughs> um... I would still think so, yeah. Okay. It's actually against the law. Uh, in fact, strikes have been broken. There was yeah. a steel strike that, that Truman, and they fired everybody. Do you remember Ronald Reagan and the, the uh, air traffic control? I think it was called PACO, the, the something of air traffic controllers back in the 80s. They all went on strike. Do you know what happened to them? No. They all got fired. Now, I thought it was endangering our air traffic control system. See, the, the reason – so the, the, the logic is the government employees provide a, a vital national service, and they're trading you know, a, a company which can hire and fire and replace and do all kinds of other things for the security of a government job. But the implication is that you have to keep doing your job. You cannot go on strike. You know, the, the military can't go on strike. Uh, the, the, you know, the certain things that just the, – the transit workers, the various things cannot go on strike. Now, the gov- certain governments let them, local, city, uh, state, and, and national governments do let government workers go on strike, but they don't have to, and they shouldn't, because that's the trade-off. So do you see, a, uh, what, do you see the distinction there between the, a government worker and a government union and a private worker and a private union? What do you think? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So do you, do you agree mean. or disagree with government workers being able to go on strike? Um. I guess because of, like, the contract that they entered into and mm-hmm. because of, like, the job, I think it would make sense um, to not be able to go on strike in those situations. But, okay. I mean, now I the, guess what now if it they're, is illegal to have a railroad strike, too, though. Go ahead. I'm sorry, say that again. And that, and that gets a little bit tricky, though, because um, that would be, like, a private union, not necessarily government union. So that's when um, an illegal strike kind of gets trickier I guess in the balance of that because I don't know would would the government yeah. have that ability to do what I mean they did it but say it's illegal to have a railroad strike 
Pianchi? Well, federal work, federal employees cannot strike, but some states allow their state employees to strike. Let me ask you a bigger question, Brianna. Should federal workers or any government workers be able to unionize? Um, I would think so, but I'm... I'm not completely sure, but I would think so. Okay. I mean, and you can think about it and come back next week. Uh, how about teachers? Should teachers be able to unionize or should they be able to go on strike? I think so, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, because as, as recently as, as FDR, uh, workers were not, government workers were not allowed to unionize. It's only since uh, John Kennedy, who signed an executive order, that uh, federal workers were allowed to unionize. There's no law. Congress never passed a law on this. They've just done it by executive order, which leads to the question, when Trump comes back in 2024, do you think he should revoke that executive order and, and not allow union, uh, federal workers to unionize anymore? But, Hold on. I want to get an answer. Um, it was... So, to not allow federal employees to unionize anymore? Mm-hmm. In, in, in other words, an executive order by one president can be countered by another president. So I'm surprised Trump didn't do yeah. this. Um, but if it, when, when Trump comes back in 2024, which I sincerely hope, do you think that that's an executive order that he should repeal? Um, honestly, I don't know enough about it to okay. um, really say which way is better. Okay. We'll revisit this next week. Pianca, let's get a comment, and then I want to get to the other things Brianna has on our list. Well, yes, there's national federations that represent federal employees, mm-hmm. and then they are labor union uh, representatives. A small number, the numbers of federal employees, numbers of labor unions, other in commercial construction, is mm-hmm. drastically reducing what it was. But, yes, there are national organizations that represent federal employees. Uh, you have okay. federal employee credit unions, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. I think those should be open to everybody. Do you think that the federal unions, this is a question for Bianca, yeah. I'll get back to Brianna. Bianca, do you think that federal unions should exist but not allow them to strike, that the government would maintain that rule? The law already says that they can't strike at the federal level. <clears throat> right. Now, state public workers can strike, but federal workers can't strike because of the necessity of their jobs for the public. Yeah. See, the way I see it, Brianna, is that the government unions are different than private unions. A private union and a company is a closed system. The company only makes so much money. The workers can only demand so much money. If the workers and the union demand too much, the company goes broke. If the company is so harsh with the workers, nobody wants to work for them. And so there's a, there's a kind of trade-off. They have to work together. But there's only so much money available. There's only so much profit. There's only so much, you know, the, uh, based on what the, the, the good or service that the company is selling. Whereas the government, the government has an unlimited resource of money that's not theirs. It's our money. It's tax dollars. So I would revoke any government union. Uh, I would make it illegal for any government to, to unionize because the people they're negotiating with, the legislators, are not using their own money. It's not a closed system. There's an infinite amount of tax money that can be drawn from us to, that the politicians can give to the unions in exchange for votes. 
So it's a completely corrupt system. And it actually goes into vote fraud, as far as I'm concerned, that the government uses well, you know, the unions. Hold, hold, on, hold on a second. I want to finish this. That the government uses the unions, and the unions use the government. The, union, the government funds the unions. It funds the, the, the workers through these contracts, and the workers pay dues to the union, and the union contributes to the politicians. So that's an entire system. Let me get Brianna's comment on that, and then I'll get back to you, Pianchi. Do you, what, based on what I've just told you, does that change your view at all? Absolutely. And I think I knew that there's something like that that, you, that you're going to know or that was going to come up. And, <laughs> and you're I'm getting like, to know me pretty well now. Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay, because you're a smart kid, so yeah. you know, it's, it's, good to, it's good to know. Okay. Um, so let me get a comment, and then I'll get Pianchi's, Pianchi's comment, and then I want to go to the next thing uh, that we talked about. So did, did you finish your thought on that? That it does change your mind? Yeah, so definitely. I think we all know um, that it's been proven that our government is not very frugal with its money and giving them more control over it is not a Well, good the frugal idea. with their money, there's not frugal with ours. <laughs> okay, Pianchi, let's get your comment and then we'll uh, get back to Brianna. Pianchi? Well, you know, this country has always had, well, I don't know if say all, but they had what they call the American Federation of Labor. Mm-hmm the uh, Congress of Industrial Organization. And most labor unions belong to the AFL-CIO. But there mm-hmm. also was competing unions, and I think they was called the CIU, Congress of Industrial Unions or something like that. So mm-hmm. companies had uh, competing unions in which they could engage and contract with. I think they got that up in Chicago. But uh, – the AFL-CIO is not the only one. There's another entity out there that has workers, too, that's available that can be used. They may not have the same benefits. They may not have the same wage scale, but they are another union. Yeah, the AFL joined with the CIO. Uh, there's also the IWW, which is the Communist Front. That was the International Workers of the World. Uh, and there's, there's the union's history is fascinating. I mean, Brandon, we should visit this again because the, the labor history is incredible. Uh, let's, and it's not reported. And it's not taught in schools. No surprise there. So what else do we have from last week? Let's, um, can we, this report goes so fast, I can't believe it. What else you got? What's on your mind? Are you talking to me now? Yes, I am. <laughs> You're the one with the notes from last oh, week. Okay. Pianchi and I, we don't take notes from last week. I've got notes. I've got, I, I got like eight books, <laughs> no, three uh, spiral notebooks that I have, five seven notebooks that I filled up already uh, just in the last uh, you know, four years I've been doing the show. Our anniversary is uh, Saturday, by the way, four years on the air at Blog Talk. Anyway, back to you. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to real quickly share what I found on this, and then I'll move on to the next topic. Okay. Well, thank you, um, So it was – Basically, the fund was to be able to be stable until 2051. Um, it was a labor agreement. He said that they negotiated a labor agreement with railroad companies um, to not include paid sick leave. Um, and then, where was it? I had just found it in this article, and now I can't find it anymore. But um, it was basically their futures are all kind of like settled with their payments. Um, see, this doesn't make sense to me to, to go with, uh, see, the, the workers need the money now and they need the sick leave so that they can actually take sick days off and not endanger everybody where that train goes. The idea that they're forcing people to, to work for them when they're sick uh, is criminal. 
you know, and then it's going to result in a, in a major tragedy one day. And this is so foreseeable. We, I mean, I can see it happening, you know, as clear as anything else. So this makes no sense. But the government is, is basically trading future payoffs and a future administration and a future budget. So in other words, it's the old kick the can down the road. You know, you know, we'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. You know, so they're, they're not, they're not uh, dealing with the situation today, which is wages, benefits, and sick leave. They're, they're doing future pensions. And they're just assuming yeah, the government's going to have the money and fund it. Positive. Okay, go ahead. I'm actually not positive on whether it's sick leave in general, like just getting like the extra days of sick leave, or if okay. it's specifically like getting extra days of paid sick leave. And I don't know if it's like specifically they want them to be paid or if they just want the sick days in general. Um, so I'm mm-hmm. not really sure on like the specifics on that part. Okay. Pianki, one quick comment, and then I want to get to, uh, to the next topic. Let me say so. Sick leave, sick leave mm-hmm. is bogus. Really, hmm. how, the hell, how the heck you go? You catch a cold. Well, let me tell you what is, is abused. Uh, uh, white uh, DC police, and I can't think of the name that they're called. If a person Capital gets police? hurt, Capitol Police, Capitol Police, and I, I don't know if it's still this way. If you get hurt, well, you have to be off. You can be off for forty years. All you got to do is have your doctor write up and say, I don't think he should go to work. You could be yeah, off your entire, you yeah. can be off your entire career, say 40 years by just getting that one note from your doctor. And that's the way it is. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a whole corrupt situation. Yeah. We, that's, that's worth investigating, but I want to, uh, um, but yeah, let me, uh, let me get back to Brianna here. And uh, it, it just makes me mad. That's the blood pressure story of the day. Um, Brianna. What, what else did we get from last week? So there was this one, um, I guess, agreement of some sort that Biden had made with the ATF, everybody's favorite organization. <laughs> and it was about um, any kind of like paper mistake, like on the paperwork. I guess that they're, I guess they're um, adding that to like, they'd tongue lying in like um, sales or whatever. Um, so any kind of paper mistakes, instead of just like getting it corrected, they're now um, sending the sellers to jail. Um, and so some gun shops have been closing down. I think I know I've heard of three, but I'm not exactly sure. Um, that's only one that I know. There's, not, there's probably a lot more. In the state, but um, they've shut down because they don't want to risk like the tiniest mistake that normally would just be corrected and sending them to jail. And so why would the ATF so do this? I think, what do you think? Yeah, that's a question, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. Well, keep going with your story and see if we can uh, we can kind of uh, flesh it out here. Yeah. Um, so I think from like my view, and I think a lot of shared views as well, can see this as kind of like almost an attack on um, a right to their own, but not directly, more of like an indirect kind of thing. Because, I mean, of course, if you like have some huge violation on, like if you're going to sell a gun to a criminal and lie and say that no, their background is perfectly good or something like that, I mean, obviously that's not not going to be good and stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. But, um, or if you do something that's actually criminal, there's just like a tiny like paperwork mistake of some sort. 
obviously they should not be sent to jail. Um, think, so that comes under what they call the, the chilling problem. effect. You know, you make an example of somebody and everybody else falls in line, and maybe they'll they'll give up their rights when they don't have to. They don't want to push their rights because it's it's you know it's like why the we have a second amendment, but there are places in the country all over the place where people do not carry a concealed firearm because, you know, it's, it's illegal by statute, but it's, but the, the Supreme law says that we have a right to, to own and carry firearms and no, no government entity can take that right away. And yet people don't carry, even though there's a, there's a bogus law below that. So that's what they call the chilling effect. So you see how that would apply here? Yes. So yeah. why would the ATF do it? Let's let's get back to the, 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 the main question. I think, I mean, the most obvious reason um, that I can think of is to, of course, you know, limit gun sales, limit gun ownership, limit mm-hmm. gun ownership mm-hmm. empower the government, depower the people. There's actually a video. I'm going to try and find it and see if I can play it on here. Um, we'll mm-hmm. see if this works very good at all. I probably should have sent this to you beforehand. But <laughs> well, we uh, it was, we, can, we can't play copyrighted stuff, but if it's um, but we can play. Uh, what you got? Is it a news story or, or what is it? Try it out. Um, it was actually a post. Okay. And somebody was talking about um, the um, I guess the power of guns that of us having them. Um, okay. Let me see if I can get this to play. Okay. As we anxiously await. <laughs> if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Yeah. You can tell me what the post says. But um... yeah. Okay. Ready. Okay. Go for it. This works. Ah. Yeah, I don't hear anything. Oh, darn. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Okay. Yeah, let's just talk um, about what it means. And, and um, but uh, let's get back to the ATF in general. So, what what is the mission of the ATF? Um, what I know is that it kind of tracks purchases. Mm-hmm. So do you know what ATF stands for? Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Yeah, they've also added explosives to that, too. So we've got a government agency oh. that, uh, that, that tracks firearms, and now they're making it, you know, they're, they're threatening to put people in jail for paperwork violations? Why would they do that? Limit gun sales and limit gun ownership. So we actually have a government agency. Now think about this. Follow this through. We've got a government agency that's purposely going out of its way to violate the Second Amendment, to limit gun purchases, to reduce the number of guns out there, while at the same time, what's what's the rest of the government doing in Washington as far as guns go? Um, Sorry, can you repeat that last part? Sure. What's the rest of the government doing uh, in terms of uh, guns and ammunition, the federal government? Not the military, just the, just the government. Yeah. So yeah, here's, a rhetor- here's my rhetorical question. Where is this going? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that went right along with the videos I was trying to show, but obviously that kind of flops. Just That's okay. That. Hey, um, I don't mind trying experiments. And then I'll get to Pianchi. I'll get his, his yeah. you know, impression on this. But I want to know. Um, go ahead. Saying, Mm-hmm. Like the one thing that's um, stopping the government, the one thing that's stopping globalization is just the knowledge 
like not even the action, but the knowledge that er that if every American citizen had a gun, like even just sitting in their closet, just the knowledge mm -hmm. of that is what's stopping the government and stuff. And I think you've even said like throughout history, like um, one of like the main things is you know not only the military having guns will help you win, but also the um, citizens. When citizens are armed, they have such a an advantage. Like mm -hmm. the Revolutionary War, that was like one of the biggest things that everybody had a gun with them. And well, that was really not only a gun, but a hunting rifle as opposed to a musket. Do you know the yeah. difference? Mm, like in how it helps. No. Uh huh. Okay. Well, this is this will be interesting technology for you. So not only you know does it does it pay to have uh, better um, you know better people in, in the spirit, but you also have better better weapons than, than uh, you know the the opposition force. A musket. They used to fire. The British would line up and they called toe to toe. You've heard that, right? This lines of, of, of soldiers face each other and shoot. It's, it's totally insane. It's an irrational an irrational form of battle. And a musket was usually yeah. a smooth bore. In other words, it did not have a rifled barrel. So the musket ball did not spin. So they weren't particularly accurate. But they figured the amount of people, you know, it's like uh, shooting, you know, would, would knock out the amount of other people just because they're all standing next to each other. It's an absurd form of battle, yet it went on for hundreds of years. Now, a, musk, now a rifle, a Kentucky long rifle, a hunting rifle has a rifled barrel. It's got a twist to it. So the musket ball spins. And it's much more accurate over much greater distance. So technology is a huge part in yeah. uh, is what made us, uh, you know, win the, the war for independence. Let me get back in this. Um, I remember learning about the change, like, from the Revolutionary War to the Civil War. They changed, uh -huh. like, the musket um, uh -huh. to add in the spiral, um, spiral path for the bullet. Yeah, Remind yeah, and it's it. something called the look up the mini ball, which is actually the Menier ball, the M-E-N-E-T. It's a French word. So somebody developed a bullet. Uh, that was, was conical shaped, much like our modern bullets today. So they went from the round musket ball to a, a, a more pointed round that would, that would go down a rifled barrel. And this is why the casualty rate in the Civil War was so ridiculously high, because the weapons were better. You know, the cannons, the grape shot, which is like shrapnel, uh, and the bullets themselves in the muskets, I mean, in the, in the rifles, were much more accurate, like to two and 300 yards. You know, so there were snipers in the Civil War. It was, it's a, technology plays a huge part. Uh, in this as well. It's, it's worth considering. Pianki, what would you do with the ATF? <laughs> Here's another rhetorical question. Well, I would uh, limit their scope for one thing. Weapons can be bow and arrow, crossbow, axe, knife, gun, blowpipe. That's what a weapon is. The bare arms, that could be the, they're not, the they're definition going after of arms. But they're going after the guns. Mm -hmm. So what is it about guns? that the government particularly despises and particularly wants. I call the Second Amendment in reverse. I don't, well, you could, yeah, that would be a good idea. You know, that would, it's hard to get into the mind of deviant people that want to take away something from you. Mm -hmm. They threaten oh. to take it away from you. Uh, mm -hmm. Just like uh, a, two arguing parents would threaten to take the kids away. Oh, that's a whole other family. That was a whole other story. Yeah, but uh, there was a Japanese either general or admiral who said we will not be able to, you know, take over the United States because there's too many individual people with gun owners. They knew their troops would never survive in this country for very long. They could attack our, our navy in Pearl Harbor, and they could, uh, you know, kind of block us. They tried to block us out of World War II and their conquest in the South Pacific, but they knew they could never invade the United States just for that reason. 
Russian assassins uh, use yeah. ice cubes. I mean, you know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, assassins use all kinds. Your, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, uh, Brianna. Back on your question uh-huh. of, um, like, the ATF, like, reasoning for this and stuff, I think the reason that they're trying to take away our guns is the same reason why our founding fathers put in there that we should have them. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's because they made it in order to protect the rights that we have, you know, speech, religion, all of these rights that we have. Um you have to have a gun in order to protect yourself and keep those. And I think everybody knows that's the barrier. That's the barrier to control is defense. You have to have some line of defense between you and tyranny. And they're trying to take that away so that they can have more control um, over everything else. And so, of course, Americans are going to fight that right off the bat. So I think they're trying to do these little things in order to make it harder and more difficult until it's impossible, and then they can start taking it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look at Democrat-controlled cities. I mean, there's, there's your future in the, for the rest of the country. Let me ask you a question on the Second Amendment, because we, we usually focus on the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. In other words, they can't touch our right to keep and bear yeah. arms, and that is absolute. But the first part, a well-regulated militia being necessary and this is the word that I focus on, a lot of people don't, being necessary to the security of a free state. What does that mean? What's that mean to you? The, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of free state. What do you think? Um, I would think any sort of military, whether it's like, you know, the United States military or, you know, like state, like um, individual National Guards um, or any kind of defense that the people have um, I think that also goes with like the foreign and domestic kind of idea. It's not stated mm-hmm. in, in the Second Amendment, foreign and domestic, but I think it can also go along with that of you know having a defense against your enemies um, home in a way. Well, let's let's focus on the beginning. In, what is a well-regulated militia? Um, like um, an army or like a military of some sort. But I know sometimes okay. like in the Revolutionary Era. They distinguish, like, the Continental Army versus the militia as, like, the militia is, like, a, a smaller, more um, kind of messy, um, not as organized as Continental Army, but they actually held them. Um, that's what I'm looking for. Basically, they were extremely helpful in a lot more situations versus the Continental Army. Whenever they, you know, were actually more helpful, if they weren't, then, of course, they were useless. But... Um, <laughs> So I yeah, think yeah. when you add like a well-regulated to it, I think it takes that and makes it into like I think in my like evaluation of it, it takes something that's really good and useful in like a, um, a military sense and refining it. This is something I think you're going to want to do some research on, Pianki. Do you want to uh, tackle the first part of the second? A, well, a, a, militia, a well-regulated a militia. militia is the people. Yeah, it's yeah. the people. It's the people who's armed, and they are regulated in their operations on what it is they're trying to achieve. It's the people. Yeah, this is what most people don't get unless you look in the Second Amendment. And the government's not going to teach you because they don't want you to know this. A a well-regulated militia uh, is specifically non-governmental. So it's not the National Guard. It's not the Army. it's It's no branch of the military. It's no branch of government at all. It is specifically a civilian organization. Now, you may not have heard this term, but the, the, the soldiers back in the 1700s weren't called infantry. They weren't called soldiers. 
They were called regulars. So if you had a regular, so you had regulars and irregulars. The irregulars would be not the regulars. The regulars would be the government army soldier. So if you were regulated, you were equivalent to a regular. In other words, a citizen would have the same arms, the same equipment, the same powder, same ball, the same you know musket balls, the same rifle as an infantry soldier. That was what made them well regulated. They were equivalent to the regulars. So you had a non-governmental citizen army. Now, given that context of a well-regulated militia, a group of citizens forming their own military force, independent of government, equal to government soldiers, is necessary for the security of a free state. Now, how does that change your view? Um, you know, one other... Yeah, oh, hold I... on, Bianchi. Hold on. I want to get Brianna on this. Go ahead, Brianna, first. I think that really makes a lot of sense. I mean, I knew the context of, like, you know, of course, they were all, like, um, citizens and stuff. But mm-hmm. I think you really highlighted that point very well of what it really means um, of giving power to the people on that. Okay. Pianki? You should study uh, Texas and the Alamo. You had 200 well-armed citizens that held all 4,000 Mexican army. Then they had re- uh, reinforcements that came from Arkansas to help them. During the Mexican-American War, you had citizens that would walk as far away from New York down to Texas in the Mexican Tech, the U- U.S.-Mexican War. Those were citizens, really. And, and you did have some army, but initially you had citizens. Uh, when the British burned the White House and they was marching to New Orleans, along the way you had citizens that fought them as well-regulated militia. Brianna? Yeah. I also think that's kind of like what spurred on like a voluntary kind of military system. I think it was part of, now I, I don't have any proof of this. This is just kind of like my own personal evaluation. Mm-hmm. This, these are not like facts. Um, but I think okay. that it might have spurred on from that same kind of idea of, you know, people that are volunteering because of the patriotism and the hope that they had. And if they wanted to defend this country and what it could become, now, obviously, there's a lot less patriotism. So this is an interesting question. Um, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I think it's a good thought. But from what I, my reading of history is that the draft was so unpopular during the Vietnam War, they had to switch. But they wanted to keep the war going, so they went to an all-volunteer army, an all-volunteer military. So I think it's out of uh, public pressure. Because the protests for Vietnam ended when the draft ended, not when the war ended. The Vietnam War went on three years after the draft ended. But nobody was protesting because they didn't care if people volunteered to go to something that a lot of people didn't think was, was justified, me included. But, but it was when people were forced to go, that's what caused the protest. That's what I think that kicked off the, uh, the all-volunteer military. Um, but, uh, but let's get back to the, the – but given what you now know, about the Second Amendment, that the founders actually thought it was necessary. It was a requirement for us to belong to a citizen militia to keep our states free. That changes everything. So, yeah. so should the so should the ATF? Well, go ahead. Tell me what you're thinking. And I'll get back to Pianchi. Given that, yeah, I mean, Second even Amendment, the Minutemen 
were mm-hmm. citizens, weren't they? And they were like one of the, I, I believe they were like the most popular force. Mm-hmm. But a, there's a recent one, too. Actually, there's a couple of them. For a while, uh, militia people were at the border earlier. I don't know why militia, not Texas and, and even Florida militia, and uh, uh, anybody along the border state, Arizona, any border state. I, I, I can't believe that the governors haven't organized militia to stop this invasion. The, the closest thing is the governor of Arizona who put containers, actually built a container wall uh, to block the invasion. But uh, the most recent one I remember uh, of, of taking up arms against the government was the Bundy Ranch. Do you remember the Bundys? Did you hear about that? No, I haven't heard about that. Okay, it'd be a great case study. Pianchi, do you know about the Bundy Ranch? Do you know what happened? Yeah, that had went on throughout history. I tell you, a good series that used to talk about uh, gun rights was uh-huh. the TV series Bonanza. Look at some of those old flick, uh, old uh, episodes, and you will see with Ben, uh, the father Ben and the brothers, they talk about we got guns, especially when the railroads was talking about uh, taking over some of uh, the Ponderosa, which was their land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's the, that's a, a huge point. Brianna, if you want to take some time and study eminent domain and whether you think that's, that should be constitutional or not. It's in the Constitution, but it should be there. That'd be a great question. Uh, we've got about six or seven minutes. Of course, you're welcome to stay longer if you, if you can. Uh, and, you know, I love having you on the show. Um, did you anything else we should cover from last week? Do we have time for another topic? I want to make sure we get as much as we can. Um, this is fun. Yeah, I don't think we have time for the other ones. The other ones are kind of even older. But um, okay, <laughs> well, give me a big question. Let's see what we can do with it. Because if not, I have a question for you. Okay. Um, so with the ATF situation, like going uh-huh. back a few steps, uh-huh. um, whenever they did this, I don't think it's in any kind of like uh, bill or published law. And I think that's part of like how the um, ATF kind of operates, um, almost outside of the law and outside of the boundaries in this way. Uh-huh. And so would it be illegal for them to um, establish or, or enforce this? Or would it or would it be perfectly legal for them um, to just enforce this as a regulation that they The uh, Greg's fell off. <laughs> The ATF makes up regulations that can be really, really ridiculous. One regulation is the length of the barrel of some rifles or shotguns. And I guess it's under the pretense yeah. that you will be able to hide it. And they limit the limit to like 18 inches. But what is 18 inches to a midget compared to a person that's six foot two? Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And then they don't want you to yeah. be able to design and build your own weapons without uh, that coming under the regulations set by them, like using 3D printers, for instance, or building out of plastics or more formidable material. So I would limit them yeah. a lot. 
So would that be something like, for this, would that be considered a crime against, like, the rights of the people if they were to enforce this? In, they make in, a rules and regulations, and they change the definition. They create words to change the definition to suit their purpose of restricting your liberties is what they do. Yeah. See, when they start, for instance, like tobacco, alcohol, when they got to the point where they uh, regulated alcohol and they put a, a federal stamp on it, which is a taxation, then that gives them, uh, opens up the door for them to create other regulations like uh, the legal age to drink alcohol, for instance. I'm back. I'm on my cell phone. Blogs have kicked me out again. So I was telling her, you know, Uh you talk about ATF, uh, Greg, and I say that the regulations they impose restrict the ownership of guns. Like, for instance, the length of a shotgun. It can't be shorter than 18 inches. Well, if it's 18 inches, they figure that a person six foot can hide it. But what about a midget? Well, I got a better question. Uh, Why do we have an ATF? It's unconstitutional. You know, if you cannot touch the, the, the right of people to keep and bear arms, in other words, own and carry, why do you need an ATF? They're an unconstitutional agency. They shouldn't have a budget. The Republicans, when they come in, the gelding Republicans, when they come in under my, my new term, you know, Kevin McDeepstate, that's what I'm calling him now. It's hard to say it, but it's funny. Kevin McDeepstate, uh, they should abolish the ATF. And there have been moves to do that, but the Republican geldings never actually do it. There's no reason for an ATF. It's crazy. Why do we have one? They don't do anything good. That's the question of the year. Well, yeah. Well, I'm I think it. they wanted Abolish to do them. something very. <laughs> I think the if they really the... wanted to do something helpful to the people, they could huh? really handle the fentanyl crisis. Well, no. The well, actually, that's the DEA. That'd be the Drug Enforcement Agency. But you notice they're not doing anything. The Border Patrol's not doing anything. In fact, nobody's doing anything because it's more valuable for the Brandon insurrection, the coup, the illegal government presently in the White House to flood this country with illegal aliens than it is for the Americans that are killed. They're trying to replace Americans anyway. Why would they care about fentanyl? Fentanyl helps. The more American patriots they can get rid of, the more illegal aliens they can bring in, the closer they'll get to a peasant class. Uh, and we'll be another third world country. That's what's going on here. So let's be blunt about it. Brianna? Well, it's good. Okay, I thought so too. <laughs> but uh, the purpose of the ATF is to disarm Americans. And the reason, let's get back to your initial point when you were talking earlier uh, about the, the idea that they're not, there's no law. They didn't make a law. They made a regulation. Well, regulations should all be voted on by Congress. This wasn't. All they do is publish it in the Federal Register, and if nobody objects, if Congress doesn't object, then it becomes a regulation, which is equivalent to law. Well, that's bogus. That whole procedure is unconstitutional. So let's talk about how regulations are made. There's no justification for the ATF. There's no justification for what they do. Their sole purpose is to disarm Americans through backhanded means to make it more and more difficult to own firearms with registration, background checks, you know, checks on the people doing it, paperwork violations, all this other crap. It's, it's death by bureaucracy. 
The whole purpose of the ATF is to kill the right to keep and bear arms by bureaucracy, by regulation, by making it tougher and tougher and tougher. There was even a, a proposal for, for $100 tax per bullet. It was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Moynihan several years ago. That's what the ATF does, and that's why they should not exist. There's no constitutional basis yeah, for right. them. In fact, there's a specific prohibition against them. What she What she may want to do is study how a law, should I say an act, ACT, becomes an act. It starts off as a bill, and it's usually directed to one of the standing statutes of the United States. For instance, like number 26 is the Internal Revenue Code. It starts off as a bill that's introduced by a congressperson. It could be great. Then once they approve it by both houses, it becomes an act that applies to a particular sector of the, mm-hmm. of the United States, like number 26 is Internal Revenue Service, number 42 is Immigration. Now, here's where it comes into the regulation, Code of Federal Regulations, CFR. The head of that regulate uh, that uh, of that sector, the head of the IRS, will read the act. Then, by the, his interpretation of what the law says, he would make regulations for Internal Revenue Service. Now, you citizen, if you figure that it's not right, you have the possibility of challenging it in the court, where you would say that this regulation goes against the law. And then, therefore, the court, the judge, gives an opinion. And then we got Josie on the line. We're going to get to her report in, in just a bit. Yeah, and I definitely learned a lot about regulations today. I knew about the bills and stuff. Actually, I was looking <laughs> up because I'm um, trying to do, like, a, a welfare bill because, um, obviously, abolishing it is something that's probably tough. Don't anything. So I'm trying we to actually create have major one. restrictions. Brianna, um, we have a bill to what? abolish welfare. Go on, go at writeyourlaws.com. Oh, of course Look at you all do. proposed laws. <laughs> it's one of the early – I'm sorry, what was that? I said, of course you do. There's <laughs> one for everything. <laughs> See, you are getting to know it. Yeah, so go check out Chris Barra's bill. It's in the beginning of the uh, – uh, it's, it's all proposed laws. It's from about two or three years ago. Uh, Chris wrote this, and it's a 25-year plan to get rid of welfare. Take a look at that and see if you want to change it, modify it, write your own, or whatever you want to do with it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know you can't, like, okay. just get a bill out and say, like, abolish it, but I think if you have, like, a plan of it, like, of steps or different bills and stuff, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm yeah. trying to, like, create a bill with major restrictions that's passable. <laughs> okay. Um, or you could well, But whenever I was doing my research. Yeah. And I when I was doing the research and stuff, it was the same kind of system that Pianchi was talking about, where it's like in different sections. And there's like, I literally found information on this in some like just off tax thing that had really like nothing to do with it except for like a tiny little like in the middle of it. Those things are what's frustrating. Those I got a question for her that she can think about. Okay. So for a congressperson in the state of Texas, who wants to introduce a gun regulation because that congressperson district has a lot of crime. But being that there are federal laws she wants to put in place, I'm giving it, I'm giving it away, really. They want it to yeah, apply throughout the whole nation. Is that right? 
I in Missouri is not. I, mean, I in Missouri is not suffering from that problem that they are in their district. So why are they trying to impose a law on me in Missouri? And I don't vote for them in the state of Texas. Yeah, I I definitely think anything to change the state specifically should stay up to individual states and shouldn't be a federal decision. I think that's also be shared by, you know, majority of Americans as well. See, I don't think, uh, back to regulatory agencies, don't bring Josie. Josie's line's live. She's been listening for a bit. I don't think regulatory agencies should be allowed to initiate regulations. They have to come from Congress. And if an agency does want to do that, they can file a bill and see if members of Congress pick it up. But the idea that a regulatory agency by itself can write a regulation, and if nobody objects, then it becomes law simply by publishing in the Federal Register. That's how we got the COVID mandate. The COVID mandate was never voted on by Congress. It was simply put in the Federal Register by the head of Health and Human Services at the time, who now works for Pfizer, by the way. Um, I'm pretty sure that – or the FDA head does. One of them does. Anyway, but that was just put in. There was no bill in Congress. So that mandate they were under that Brandon keeps signing, signing uh, was never voted on by Congress, and that's wrong. So I don't mind well, the really that was coming from a law, but they can't just make it up themselves. They can't start it. Then we'll get Josie in here. Go ahead, get I, one more that comment. was a mandate nobody had to follow, really. People didn't well, have to follow that. Right, exactly. That's another story. All right, Brianna, why don't you go ahead and then I'll get Josie. Well, we, we need to uh, – you can stick around, but I want to get Josie. I completely agree with that point that you're making, and I don't exactly know, like, how many bills or anything that um, different governments have to go through, but I know, like, right. one of the things that I've learned is, like, the government has so many different bills and – or uh, laws or any kind of problem or case um, to get onto the house and stuff. If any of them um, – don't actually touch like that uh, that session of that year of sessions or whatever, then they just like go away and you just like restart from the very bottom. So I think part of that is like to bypass all of that, but also it's extremely dangerous because it kind of like almost that means that like if like Congress and stuff doesn't say like no, that's not illegal, then it becomes law, right? Or the regu- regulation becomes almost like the law. And it might not be because, like, Congress decided not to go against it. It might just be because they never got to it or they, it was never, like, brought to them or just any kind of different things like that just based on what I've, I've learned. That's a really big possibility that it can be um, a hindrance to, like, the actual no, process of how legitimate these things are. Yeah, but see, I want positive action, not not uh, negligent action. And the fact that they did nothing should not make a yeah. regulation become law. It should take positive action to make it a law first. Then you can make a regulation from it. All right, let's get to Josie. She started off as a poor child in Nicaragua, living under communism. And now she is a prosperous small businesswoman with a great family, living the dream as an American citizen. Josie Cossey knows all about both worlds, communism and freedom. She knows where your dreams can come alive and where they can die very quickly. And so her report is as much from experience as knowledge, and her passion and crusade are very real. With connections all over Central and South America, Josie brings you the world south of the U.S. border from personal experience, living, not just reporting, what's happening. And now, the Latina Report with Josie Coffey. 
Hey, morning, Josie. Feel free to jump into what we're talking about or, or change the subject or do Good whatever morning, you want. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Brianna? Good morning. Good morning. Good. Yeah, I was going to have to go Okay, well, if you have to go, you got to go, chica. So, God bless. Have a blessed day, okay? All right, You're doing bye. Good. Have fun. Every, every week it gets better. Thank you. Thanks, Brianna. We'll talk to you next week. I was, I Merry was Christmas. mentioning a little bit. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. <laughs> yeah, Feliz Prospero Navidad. Año e felicidad. Feliz Navidad, yeah. Yeah, I was listening a little bit. I wish yes, you were married to the first. During COVID? I'm going to wish they you a Merry Christmas. Merry I was singing the song. Oh, you were singing the song. Jose Feliciano. <laughs> Jose Feliciano. I think I was five years old when that song came out, something like that, man. It was like Probably. long, long, yeah, long time ago. It's very Prospero cute. Año e felicidad. Nuevo. Prospero año y felicidad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll all be hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was listening a little bit. You guys were saying uh, Congress did not sign a bill to mandate all this COVID uh, fraud that we've been going through. So it's pretty sad. That's right. You know, it breaks my heart. People are still dying from this. Uh, uh, my husband at the coffee shop that he goes and spend a couple hours every morning with all the guys. I think he's kind of like the young ones. Most of them are 80 years old or over. Um, wow. One of the uh, young men was there yesterday. Well, not too young, but he was very angry and upset that his his friend's uh, wife went and took the second shot and she died right after the shot. Right after the shot, she's dead. Oh, no. I'm like, are people stupid? Oh, my God, this is horrible. But you know, Greg, every day about this, and uh, mm-hmm. they respond on a lot of people, well, I guess population control. Are you stupid? You want to be part of that population control gone, vanished from the earth? It's just the way it kind of bothers me when people say, well, I guess they want population control. Like, well, I guess I'm out of here. It's so stupid. People don't think. I, I don't know. Well, those are the people, if they arrest all, all patriots and put us all in a gulag, they'll be like, well, they probably deserved it. I mean, that's that same yeah. mentality. Yeah. Because there, so don't count on those go, people so, to help us out. You're right. Some people go, so what did the Trump supporters do? Did they invade the, the, uh, the Capitol? I said, no. I was there. They didn't do that. They did it. They planned it. They're well organized, the whole thing. But anyway, let's talk about other stuff because we talk about this every day just about. <laughs> yeah, no, so, so let's talk about what you want to talk about. Yeah, go ahead. What's what's happening? Well, I want to talk about the Pope. Oh, good the topic. Pope, yes, please. I want to hear all about Pope this. The Pope is resigning, and this is kind of like unusual. Well, okay. my opinion is he's going to be arrested, so he's, He's stepping down because uh, he thinks he's going to get away with all the crimes. Uh, and, you know, he hasn't been there long enough from Argentina. But uh, he's responsible for a lot of child trafficking, money laundering. It's the biggest money laundering from the Vatican. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just sad. So he's stepping down. Have you down, been to the Vatican? 
Have you ever been to the Vatican Trust? Actually, actually, no. Okay. No. I have. I'm not. Uh, I got there. Yeah. I got in Rome Easter Sunday and actually went to see John Paul uh, the mm-hmm. second give uh, Easter benediction. It was fabulous. But the Vatican's mm-hmm. huge. There's money there. It's an entire. It's a city. They it's got an a empire. Wall. It's a worldwide <laughs> business. So tell me about. I want to know more about the Pope. I should ask Wendy about this for uh, uh, for Wednesday. But tell me now. Now, were you raised Catholic coming from a, a Central American country? Of course. All the Latino okay. people are raised Catholic. That's the only thing you know. You know, even though they're a bunch of crooks, uh, I remember. I remember that the United States used to send, I mean, tons of uh, of milk, like in uh, dry milk, you know, powder milk, to Nicaragua right. to give to the poor people in the neighborhood. I was one of that child, and um, the church would give it to all their families, the nuns, everybody in the church, but not to the poor people like us. And then when they feed me, not me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what happened is that after maybe six months, they figured they had way too much milk stored away for them. So finally, when it became like a piece of stone, finally they will give us a box for each family, and we were like so excited. I remember cutting the dry milk with a knife that it was so hard like a rock. And then it will stick into your teeth, you know, because we just ate it like in little balls, you know, like as we cut it with a knife. You told me about this. I, rem- I remember this. Yeah, story. it is hard. It's yeah. sad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what they do. Like huh. like when uh, the United States sent tons of potatoes to Nicaragua for the earthquake, you know, in right. 1972, tons and tons and tons of food and things. They were making you, in order for you to get any potatoes, in order for you to get any black beans or anything like that, you have to go in the streets and clean the streets or, or pick up dead bodies in order for you to get a certain amount of potatoes and beans to eat. Yeah. Wow. You have to work I believe it. it. If not, they will not give it to you. And the United mm-hmm. States sent it for, like, relief for the people to not to starve. These people are dictators and communists, Sandinistas now. It's bad. At the time, it was Somoza, of course, 1972. But it's the same thing all over the world. You send money to Ethiopia and all those countries, it goes in the pocket of the government, the money, and, and the food goes for their families. And that's why when I made my first trip to Cuba, uh, and, you know, the churches are nice over there. They're very poor. I brought a couple suitcases full of stuff, and the only thing for me was in my little carry-on. I wanted to make it by, you know, even though I like my little makeup and all that stuff, but not in Cuba. <laughs> you have to be humble. Yeah, there's oh, yeah. no... There's yeah. no so, so I opened both suitcases, and I, I wanted everybody in the church to make a big line, and I was handing out stuff to everybody. And they didn't like that too much because they want to be in control to decide who gets what and when, and I did it differently. I want to make sure that people, about 60 people were there, let me tell you. And some of the people didn't get much, so I gave them a little bit of money. Uh, so everybody got something that day, Greg, and that's what I wanted to see, that people got something in their hands, not you know, the pastor being in charge, you know. Yeah. 
So. What's interesting, we, we talk about a separation of church and state in this country, which, of course, is bogus. Mm-hmm. It's not in the Constitution. But you look at the Catholic mm-hmm. Church, they're acting like a state. They're acting like a state government. So the churches you know, around the world, the Catholic churches, are like branches of the Catholic government. Yes, the way they, they are. The way they're controlling resources, distributing resources, that's exactly what a corrupt government would do. So, so a Catholic church in a third world country is, is like a third world government unto itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And if you okay. if you go to Spain, Toledo, or Seville, or, or, or Santiago de Compostela, which is closer to Portugal and uh, and Spain, uh-huh. it's, they're 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 next to each other. What a corruption! Man, the gold on those churches! Oh my lord! They could feed <laughs> they could feed the whole country with yeah. the gold that they have in Spain that they stole from Peru. You know that they stole. Uh, so much gold. Oh yeah, that's why yeah. I have to visit I've been Vatican. in the... the Vatican has more uh-huh. gold and finery and marble, and it's unbelievable. I mean, if you, you know, I, I don't, if you try to put a price on the Vatican, it's staggering. Uh-huh. The amount of money, but you know, plus all about, the real estate. Talking about the Pope. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Uh huh. Talking about the Pope. Who is the Pope? He, Who is this he's guy? a radical left communist from Argentina because a lot of the people from Argentina, not everybody, but many are left. That's where they they, they head they're they're lefty and that's what this pope is. And a lot of the Catholic people that I was praying at the abortion clinic, most of them are Catholic. And there's right. a lot of people that do not like the Pope. They want to see him gone. Literally. Yeah. Uh, this doctor that I pray with, uh, he's on my Facebook, uh, him and his wife, but he, him comes more. He's a doctor uh, by day, and on the weekend, he's a pro-lifer with his big signs and everything, and he's really a pro-life. He cannot stand the Pope. No, he said, that's no good. He's no good at all. So for a Catholic uh, very involved in his church and everything, uh, it's uh-huh. a big thing for a Catholic to say the Pope got to go. And uh, when I went to the Ukraine, I was just teasing. I told my Ukrainian pastor, I said, the Pope smokes dope. And the pastor didn't, I know, the pastor did not know much English at all. And he was repeating and repeating, Pope smokes dope. Pope smokes dope. And I'm like, oh. I said, oh, my God, what have I done? I said, no, 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 don't say that. <laughs> Well, well, here's the question. I, uh, mm-hmm. If you can give me a little history lesson, because I'm not as familiar. My, the Pope I remember was John Paul II, the good one, the Polish Pope, who was brilliant, who was wonderful, who I saw live you know, back in 1982 when I was bumming around Europe. Uh, and I just happened to get to Rome Easter Sunday. I, I was lost track of time. I didn't realize until I got there. I had a hard time finding a place to stay. But do you remember the Pope since John Paul? Because I, I really, there's kind of like a gap in my knowledge here. And maybe Pianchi can fill in it, it too. But do you remember the Pope since John Paul? Because he was the best. Well, know, he had the solidarity, you know, and then they just kind of changed. I I haven't paid much attention because when I was 16 years old, I I left. I cut the umbilical okay. cord of the Catholic Church, so I didn't care. I didn't pay attention much of it. So to me, they're all corrupt. All of them have babies on the side. All of them. They have children. Uh, and the reason I I depart from the Catholic religion, uh, because uh, at a six, 
I was almost 16 years old in Peru and with a little boyfriend, and I wanted to kiss and hug and all that. And he was staying at the uh, at the church uh, in Lima, Peru, uh, staying in the dorms. And we just wanted to hug and kiss, and uh, he wanted – he wanted to become a priest to please his parents, not because he wanted to, because he was in love with me. Uh, so we went everywhere, and the priests, nuns, they were everywhere. I'm like, where the heck are we going to hug and kiss, you know? So we <laughs> found a place. We found a pl- yeah. we found a place in the basement of the church in Lima, Peru. It's called San Francisco, the church. And we were in shock as we opened the doors to go and hide and kiss. Uh we found a bunch of baby bones, like the nuns were aborting all their babies in secret. Oh, my God. So, and it's still there, and a lot of people from Peru know about it. We we talk about it with some of my friends. So there were a lot of baby heads, little legs, little arms, and we were, like, in shock as young kids because I was 16 and he was 17. And uh, from that moment on, he left the church. He no longer wanted to be a priest. And I no longer wanted to be part of that cult ever again. That was it. But uh, if you go on YouTube, there's a lot of reports, over 50, maybe maybe 70 by now, uh, really good uh, men that they were like uh, to be a priest. They left the priesthood. They're no longer Catholic. And they talk about it. And there's other videos that I have seen over 10,000 uh, illegitimate children from different popes and different uh, high-end uh, Catholic men in the church uh, at the Vatican. So there's it, – it, it, look, God created men and a woman to, to reproduce, not just for you to be alone. I mean, it's, a, it's your choice if you never want to get married. Uh, but there's a lot of corruption with the nuns. There's headhunter nuns that they take over, and it's it just – it's all corrupt. It's all corrupt. And uh, like I said, the biggest money laundry is Ukraine, and the second biggest one, uh, or bigger, is the Vatican. Uh, but they're all going to get shut down. And if you notice, uh, big head honchos like like the Twitter stepped down a little bit, uh, Facebook, uh, uh, Amazon, big corporate head honchos are stepping down. Fachi's going to step down. He says, uh, now uh, the Pope is stepping down. Uh, they're all going to be arrested, and they think they're going to escape, but no one will escape. There's not going to be a place in the earth where all these people can hide. There's none. Because once the whole truth comes out about all the corruption and the child trafficking, adrenochrome, uh, and all this uh, gun and drugs, and trafficking that has been going on for years and years and years, these people are not going to have a place to hide ever, ever. They, and they think they will by stepping down. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen at all. But, uh, yeah. Well, I, I've I, never understood. I, no, I got a question from the Catholic Church. I've never understood because it's not in Scripture. You know, it's not part of the Bible that that church officials have to remain celibate they can't marry they can't have kids they have to lead this this totally unnatural life and because they have to lead this unnatural life they behave very unnaturally you know they become pedophiles they become child molesters they become 
you know, all these horrible things. They have kids anyway. They, they're, they're having sex even though they're not supposed to. So, why, so what mm-hmm. happened to the Catholic religion? Why didn't they do what the Protestant religions do and, and uh, you know, the Baptists and the, the, Other the, the Protestants mm-hmm. and the, uh, you know, the Congregationalists and the Methodists and the Unitarians and all the branches of Christianity except the Catholic Church? I think they can marry. Maybe the Episcopalians can't. I'm not sure because they're almost Catholics. Yeah, they can But other married. than that, uh, it's, it's all, you know, it's all a religion, tradition, and routine, all of it. Look, back huh. in the old days, they tortured people on a stake because they wanted to read the Bible, and they didn't allow for you to read the Bible, the Catholic Church. It was a no-no. Only the priests were allowed yeah. to have the Bible, you know, in their hands. And I remember as a child, Greg, that my parents uh-huh. wanted to make sure me and my sister, the oldest one, us, but the older two were already gone out of the house. But the oldest in line were my sister and me. My mom mm-hmm. and my dad made sure they gave us like a peso. With one peso, we wanted to go to church, but we really didn't care much about the church. But we were so hungry when we were kids that we knew it was like paying us off. So by getting that peso, we will share 25 cents each and give 50 cents to the church. We never gave the dollar to the church. We ate ice cream on the way out of the church. <laughs> we made sure we exchanged the money. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. why we really went to church, me and my sister, not because we wanted to. Uh, and my mom and dad never were an example. They never went to church. Never, never. And they were so-called very Catholic, but they didn't have a clue about anything. Uh, the nuns were abusing us by beating us up. Uh, they were nasty and mean. And they were in control of us and shaking us and whipping us with a ruler in the top of your hand, not in the palm, but in the top. And a lot of times they almost make you bleed. Uh, they were nasty. And, uh, and that's, the, that's the memory that I have as a child. And when I was in church, I remember these priests preaching in Latin. What in the heck is he doing? We speak hmm. Spanish. We don't know nothing about Latin. I remember... As a young girl, the, as young as seven years old, that we started going to church, uh, that he would preach or whatever, and they said, oh, oh, amen. That was it. That's all I learned. Amen. Because <laughs> the rest of the So this is fascinating. Latin. This is another part of, the, of the, the reason I don't understand Catholics, because you've got a Bible that only the priest can, can have. It's like it's, it's secret knowledge, whereas Jesus didn't preach that. Jesus didn't preach yeah. celibacy, as far as I know. Jesus probably had sex, you know. So I, no, none of this didn't. stuff makes any sense. What's a, what? What the Catholic Jesus. religion is doing? What's that? Go ahead. Jesus did not have sex. He was the perfect, perfect man in the earth. Jesus didn't have sex. No. Are you sure? No. Uh, so I'm curious. I'm sure. All right. Okay. No. But he didn't preach he was against perfect. it. Okay. No. Well. But now the Catholic Church do use the Bible now that I'm not part of it, uh, which is good. And they don't speak, in, I mean, and they don't do services in Latin, as far as I know, either. That changed with Pope no, Pius, I think. Yeah, they Yeah, don't. Pope Pius changed it to English, so that was a good thing. So tell me about the, well, Pianchi, let's bring him in a conversation. Maybe he knows something about the, 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 the popes, because I remember John Paul, and I think there's been a couple of other ones before this current one, but they've all gotten progressively more liberal. They, they've gotten into climate change, and they, uh, you know, they're doing all kinds of, oh, preaching yeah. all kinds of nonsense, and everything else like that. Now, this particular pope, you know, you say is into all the corruption. It wouldn't surprise me. You know, how else do you get to be Pope? You know, talk about an inside position. You know, you, you think that the, the deep state, you know, we're talking about a deep state. That's the religious deep state, deep state. in the Catholic Church. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> You're funny. The deep state, deep church. So let's call the Catholics deep church. <laughs> yeah. Is Bianchi on? Bianchi, what do you think of all this? He's there. He's just probably doing stuff. Let's see if we can wake him up. I started laughing when she said he loved me. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm listening. Well, I, I didn't see Josie at 15 running running into a church basement. I might have done that myself. Sounds like fun. Heck yeah, I was young and yeah. in love. <laughs> wow. Do you ever you ever hear yeah. from this person? You know, with with Facebook and uh, social media, I he found never got married. I... Interesting. He never got married. Huh. He was still waiting for me, uh, and then he was taking Aww. care of his mom. But with COVID, yeah. I don't know if he's dead or not. I have to find out through a friend because uh, once in a while he will send a message, happy birthday, after since 1976. Wow. And I haven't heard for a long time, so who knows? Yeah. And I found my other, my first boyfriend. I seen pictures of him in Washington, D.C., you know, when I was used to go to high, uh, junior high and high school in Washington. Uh, I uh-huh. found him, and he's divorced, and he looks old. Oh, my God. I'm like, <laughs> I've seen pictures of him. So it's kind of like, well, like me, I'm getting old, too, so it's, it's sad. <laughs> but that's what well, happens. But, you know, we're still, we're still yeah, functioning. You know, you are pretty much the same age. You know, and I finally found a job I, I liked, you know, Action Radio, about the time all my friends are retiring. <laughs> you know, and I was like, I'm just getting started. So uh, I got stuff to do. You know, there's, there's plenty of things going on. Uh, Warren's back on the line. We had him on yesterday. We were talking economics in the third hour. It was quite a spicy discussion. Uh, I'll bring him on, but I want to make sure that, Jesse, we get your report covered first, and oh, then I'll no. let you two talk. I, I, I talked to Warren already yesterday. Well, he's back. Oh, no. Well, Warren, when are you going to invite me to your show? Uh, I'm on cell phone, by the way, Warren, because the blog talk kicked me out. Why don't they kick him out? I mean, there's something interesting to find out. Anyway, so back to you. Let's, uh, let's make sure we cover our topics first, and then so, I'll uh, Yeah, I uh-huh. wanted to talk about the border next. Um, they're coming by the thousands. I mean, it is bad. It is bad. Um, they were interviewing Governor, what's his name from Texas? I cannot think of his name. Um, Did I know here? Greg Abbott. Ah, Abbott. Um, yep. This uh, radical left communist uh, from, I think it was MSNBC or whatever, this old lady, she was interviewing him and talking uh, and uh, She's blaming him and Ron DeSantis for all the illegals flooding the, the border. She's insane. That's irrational. She says. That, that's she that's says, insane. Yeah, you're right. She goes, oh, they're saying, she goes, that the reason they're coming to flood the border is because you and Ron DeSantis are saying that the borders are wide open. So they are coming because of you. So it's your fault and Ron DeSantis. <laughs> I was like. You gotta be kidding me! You gotta be kidding me! They are coming because it's well organized by Obama, the United Nations, and all the radical left leaders. uh, Their puppet Obama, Biden, and all these people and Kamala. That's why the illegals are coming in, and and they're coming from all over the world, all over the world, all over the world, because they send flyers in different villages, different areas including some of my family tell me there's flyers going on that now is the time to come before they get Biden out of office. That's the new thing in Nicaragua and in Salvador and Honduras. That's what's going on. Now, 
Can you he get a picture of one of those time. notes? Can Can you get something we can post on that? Because that'd be fascinating uh, too. Yeah, or maybe I'll a translation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's post that because <laughs> yeah, the, that's the, the, the problem is the the big challenge is is because since they're already here in such numbers, is how we send them back, how we make their life so miserable here that uh, that they want to go home uh, and they fix will. their own country. I mean, that's that's the they challenge. Um, but um, trust me. But the, but you know, I, I said something to Jonathan. Yeah, I said something to Jonathan a couple of weeks ago. I said not, I said the best defense is a really good false accusation. And this is like the standard standard uh, ploy of the left. They'll accuse, you know, DeSantis and Abbott of bringing the illegal aliens after they brought in the illegal aliens. It's like when they say mm-hmm. you can't say the government was stolen, and that's said by the people that stole the government. <laughs> so it's, it's projection. Yeah. It's, uh, it's false accusation. It's government by false accusation. It's really pretty incredible. Uh, but the border yeah. now, they, the Title Forty Two was suspended. The the, the revoking mm-hmm. of Title Forty Two. Title Forty Two. That's the public health. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. done by uh, J- Chief Justice John Roberts. I'm surprised. What do you think? Look, John Roberts is corrupt. The reason they're using him for a lot of stuff is because they blackmail him. Every time he turns around, they blackmail you. You have to do this and this and this and that, or else they're going to release all the information. And that's what's happening in Hollywood, uh, Supreme Court, and the military. They do things when you're younger. And they got all the evidence to blackmail you. And then you have to go along with a corrupt, criminal, left, uh, radical uh, Democrats. And some Republicans, too, not just Democrats. Well, that's what Democrats are doing, uh, saying any Republicans <laughs> yeah. run. They go back to the past. They go back to the junior high. You know, did you, uh, did you do something embarrassing or stupid or, or you know, on a, on a date when you were, you know, they 14? Videotape. <laughs> they videotape. A, they videotape a lot of the head honcho militaries, and they have all mm-hmm. this dirt. And this is normal, and uh-huh. they've been doing this for a long time, years and years and years. So they blackmail all these people to do whatever they want, like a bunch of puppets. So, but well, we what, are uh, going to deport J. all Edgar of them. Hoover did. All of them. J. Edgar Hoover did the, the same. Remember, J. Edgar Hoover did the same thing to uh, all his political opponents, particularly Martin Luther King. I mean, he had photographs, mm-hmm. videos. You know, false yeah. either false testimony or made up stuff or just false accusations. So this is there's not much difference between you know the Gestapo and the FBI. In fact, there's probably no difference today. But the way that uh, that our government has operated in secret against Americans is very much the same uh, as as these communist countries and and the the Muslim theocracies. They all operate the same way. Secret police are secret police. You know, so mm-hmm. there's, there's really yeah. no difference between them. The only difference we had was that we had a constitution, most of it. Um, you know, so that we had uh, we had something we could do again, we could take against them. But now people are finding out things more and more. So, do you find people are are you know? Well, here's a question from earlier. You're, you're talking about how people are dropping dead from the vaccine, and people are surprised. I mean, okay. we're not surprised because we've been following this. Well, there was something that came out just the, the other day. Steve Kirsch, uh, I talked about this on the show yesterday. Steve Kirsch, who has millions of followers of his Substack articles, I'm going to start writing for Substack. Um, but he he came out and he had this this poll. He was saying, well, who 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 was the first you know, to announce that uh, the vaccines were bad and that the COVID was a problem, the government, you know, response was, uh, you know, bad. And it, as it turns out, it was us here at Action Radio, you know, March you 2nd did. with our show. You and me. And, yeah, and, and, the, and the bill, exactly. And then the bill that I wrote February 27th, you know, saying that the government mm-hmm. could only spend half money on, on uh, vaccines and it spend the other half on early treatments because those work. Yeah. So we did. We mm-hmm. were actually on the forefront of that. We've been but talking about it is, since the beginning. Yeah. But we were also yeah, the first absolutely. people censored. You know, that's why nobody mm-hmm. knows about us now, because we were censored before oh, yeah, we could. Oh, uh, they were blocking you so many times. 
Yeah. Oh, they're still doing it. Tweet, oh, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll break through one day. Tweet a de- deleted me because I said, yeah, right. Biden is getting <laughs> the real vaccine. He's getting sailing, and boom, you deleted yeah. So well, see, with me, they don't delete me. They, 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 they don't delete me. They just block access from anybody finding what I do. Oh, I no. A core group. I was deleted. A friend's book. Yeah, see, I didn't delete me. Well, I, you know, but they, they usually, but I've been restricting everything else. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about that now because what it comes to, and I'll get Warren in a minute here, but what it comes to is that the people that are saying that they have no idea the vaccine is dangerous, they have no idea that it's not a vaccine, first of all. Uh, it's, a, it's a gene no. shot. Um, but there's there's two sets of news. There's news that that that, uh, that we're getting into and using analysis and looking at the facts and looking at the studies and reporting real news. And then there's the fake news out there that people that they think they're calling real news and they're getting this propaganda line. Oh, the vaccine is safe and effective. The government wasn't stolen. Yeah. They believe all this nonsense, absolute nonsense. But they believe it because they don't have anything to counter it, because all of us that are countering it are being censored. So it's like fake news plus no no good news. So these people just it's generally don't know. Well, well I, I can't know, blame them for not knowing because they don't know that they don't know. They think they no. know, and that's how propaganda works. They think they know that the vaccine it's is okay. safe and effective. They think they know that the government wasn't stolen. They have no clue that it was stolen, that the vaccine is deadly. I was listening to a report this morning on Brian Sicknick. I think Brian Sicknick was killed by a COVID shot. He was one of the first to die because the Capitol Hill police were the first to get it. Remember when Pelosi, mid-December, so let's give it to all the Capitol Hill staffers and Capitol Hill police. Brian Sitnick dies, you know, a couple of days after January 6th of two blood clots. We don't die of yeah. blood clots at a protest. You die of blood clots from a COVID shot. Yes, so many people have blood clots. Oh, I had a lady uh, in my store yesterday, and she said, yeah, okay. I'm, they're seeing spot on my lungs and, like, blood clots, and it's all that rubbery stuff building in, you know. It's sad. Have we analyzed and, those? I do you have any doctor? Okay, Pianki, first I'll ask my question. Go ahead, Pianki, and then I'll get Warren in here, too. I had a friend just had a heart aneurysm. Oh, no. Um, Sunday. He got COVID the shot. shot. Yeah. He got the yeah. shot when it first came out. And, and, but, you know, and probably you it was, though. Go ahead. Hey, go ahead Jeff, what was your question? What was your question? <clears throat> I've forgotten now. <laughs> oh, gone. come oh, on. Oh, oh. I'll think in a minute, but uh, I should write these down. But um, no, it's it's uh, you know why why didn't these people know you know why why can't you know and everybody knew that it was reported that COVID is not that big a problem that ninety nine point nine percent of the people no. are not going to be seriously affected by this. So why and that did exactly. get out early on. So why did people? In fact, I have a CDC chart saying that COVID basically disappeared mid July of twenty twenty. And then the government brought it back for their lockdowns and policies and masks and closures and panic and anxiety and everything else. They, they made people so, so stressed. They, their immune systems were suppressed until the, the, the so-called vaccine came about, which wasn't a vaccine. And then it started killing people. And they just, and people don't, because they've never made the connection. Go ahead. The agenda, the agenda is to wipe out half of the world. And this is worldwide. All the countries are in it. So mm-hmm. what's going to happen is, uh, in the elections, if you notice all these countries that I have mentioned before, our government is involved, placing who they want and controlling each country. But this is this is worldwide. Let me tell you this this agenda of these criminals. But it's going to be worldwide military takeover coming up soon. You'll see. 
So anyway, I want I yeah, to know just, what Warren have to say about COVID. Yeah, shots, that's what, you know, I, I disagree with you on the military taking over, but I think that people are rebelling. They just don't know how to rebel. And that's our job yeah. here. This is the problem that's being suppressed is we got the way to rebel. We've got the legislation that can mm-hmm. fix all this. Yeah. We just have to have people uh, get it into the media and then to Congress and then uh, tell them if they don't vote for it, then uh, the elections, you know, they'll be out. All right, let's bring on Warren. Mm-hmm. So Warren is the host of uh, Wake Up New Orleans. He was on yesterday. We we're talking economics. And I'm going to let you, you guys talk. So Warren, why don't you go ahead and then uh, Josie and Pianchi can, uh, uh, you guys can talk a bit. Warren, mm-hmm. welcome back. Oh, uh, oh, Greg, uh, how's everything, Greg? And Pianchi, how are you? Everyone's fine. Okay, you missed the conversation with Vince on Sunday. Um, Josie, como esta hoy? Muy bien, muy bien, obrigado. Okay, estoy so, muy bien so también. What is your take, Warren, on all these killer shots? Any of your family well, members took- got the shot? Yeah, I took the vaccine, and, and I haven't heard anybody in my family took sick or anything. That's not to say that there may be some health problems I don't know about. They haven't told me, but I mean, I'm I'm fine. I took mm-hmm. the I took the two shots, then I took the booster. So uh, why did I you won't do take that? Warren, Pardon? why, why wow. did you do that? Yeah. Were you worried about your health? Were you worried about COVID? Are well, you, I mean, well, you know, well young and healthy or what? According to the information that was given and that was very prolific, was that it was being said that taking a vaccine would uh, make it uh, less likely that you would contact the virus. And so, uh, what if you did contact like, the virus? What if you did contact the virus? Well, what, I didn't want to. I, I, well, first of all, I'm, I have not that I know of. I haven't contacted the virus that I know of, but I didn't want to take the chance of. Uh, suffering whatever consequences one might experience having gotten the virus. So I want to take precautions. So that was a, something that was uh, presented to people as a uh, a preventive measure to possibly make your risk of getting the virus lower. You know, if you caught the virus, your symptoms uh, may not be as bad as those who didn't take it and caught the virus. So I didn't, I didn't want to... Okay. Uh, I, I don't so like you didn't trust he your was just like, He was just like like everybody else. It's, you, yeah, but you're I'm innocent innocent I want to get the psychology. That, uh, that ain't going to let you go, Josie, to to do uh, you guys can talk. But the psychology is did you not trust your immune system and did you not trust early treatments if you got it? So so the vaccine was like your only no, I didn't trust, it was your only way or what? I didn't trust I didn't trust the virus because I've, I've, I've known people during that period had, who died. I mean, I've known people. I mean, many people died. Many people die, you know, and so were they also it was, did they have other factors? Because most people die from they, COVID they, they, were either obese, diabetic, uh, had cancer, had heart disease, were old, had a bunch of other things going on. Do you know any young, healthy people that died specifically of COVID only, not anything else? They, well, people young people say people, under young 50. People, yeah, there were people under 50, 50 died. Uh, in fact, in fact, had no other symptoms that were otherwise normally healthy. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what, what they, what their health conditions were. Uh, That's the question. Though. Before this, yeah. All right, Josie. Well, well, okay. those people, because I talk to doctors and nurses daily, it was severe in the hospitals, but the COVID really, really did not kill people. Only three percent of people in the world. 
And that's where we're at now. And a lot of doctors are coming forward, a lot of whistleblowers. A whistleblower uh, from Pfizer, which is one of our friends, uh, she's letting it out. And they're delete. They're, at the beginning, they were deleting all her videos and everything because they, they don't want people to know. So, a lot of innocent people like you were deceived, and you were doing. You thought you were doing the right thing by protecting yourself and all that, but a lot of people, including some of my doctor friends in Miami, they were lied to. You know, and pharmaceutical. She's a pharmaceutical. She was lied to. So I had a, I had a friend in from New Orleans down there. Uh, Devin Collins, he took the shot, got real big and heavy, and he died. Another Devin friend, uh, Dave. Devin, no, Devin didn't take the shot. I knew Devin. Devin did not take the shot. That's, that's what was said when he died, that he caught COVID on the movie set. Because he was working at a movie on set. On the I movie, this movie This movie called Emancipation. Yeah, my friend wasn't, uh, wasn't in movies. He was. He was a he was a uh, attorney. Another Who's friend of mine, uh, Dave Dave Collins, uh, not Dave Collins, Dave March. He uh, they put him on a respirator, <laughs> and he died. So you know, yeah, they people are having these effects. CDC says, according to their data, the majority of people that's dying from COVID are those who have had shots. Yeah. Yeah, I knew I knew Devin Collins. He used to go to Egypt a lot with uh, Ashwa Kwesi. All right, well, yeah, that's him. Yeah, yeah, he. Uh, so back to and, and the, <laughs> please. Yeah, but 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 my understanding was that he caught COVID on a movie set. He was actually working with that movie that's out now called Emancipation that they shot here in New Orleans or areas of Louisiana. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then people mm-hmm. wanted to blame it on Trump and say that he could have done more to stop it. Well, what was it going to do? Make people, government's not supposed to make people take shots. Josie. Josie. ¿Qué pasa? ¿Qué pasa? ¿Conocí a Miguel Obando y Bravo? I don't know who that is. <laughs> That was the Archbishop of 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 Managua. Yeah, but I'm not involved in the Catholic thing. Oh, you're, <laughs> so oh, you're not know. Catholic. I met so him. Let's, no, let's, not Catholic. Focus in, let's focus in a little bit here on, on, on the Oh, I was, I was trying to go back. I, I was trying to go back let's to the do, religious things he was talking about. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. It's okay. Go well, ahead. I want to focus in. We got this. we have a guest at nine o'clock, so we have a, okay. we're going to totally change the topic. We're going to talk horses. It's going to be great fun. But anyway, hey, horses. Yeah, I got a horse. So cat. what happened? So tell me about the Pope. I mean, I mean where's where's his, where's he going to go? What's the Catholic Church going to do? What do you want to see them do? Do you think we should intervene in what what the Catholic Church is doing? Uh, I'm curious. Well, I'm I I grew up Catholic. I'm not a practicing Catholic. Now, I don't go to mass like we used to when I came up. But I want, I was telling I wanted to tell Josie that this. Archbishop that used to be in Managua, Miguel Obando de Bravo, I met him once uh-huh. in New Orleans because he has family lives here. He died oh. in 2018. He was he was a well known uh, bishop there in Nicaragua. Uh-huh. In Nicaragua, so he, when you were when you were there, you grew up in Managua. 
Yeah, I grew up in Managua, yes, in the city. He was the archbishop. <laughs> he was the archbishop when you were growing up there. Yeah. Yeah, I I left Nicaragua in 1971. Yeah, yeah. oh, he became the bishop like around 1970, I think he became the archbishop there. Uh-huh. I don't know much about him. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to know I oh, wanted ahead, to know Jeffrey. what did he think about the Pope that he's resigning? Oh the Pope's resigning? Yeah. I didn't oh I didn't I didn't hear that news. That happened, it came out this morning? No, yesterday. Oh wow, yesterday. I didn't I didn't I didn't hear that. Oh, that can be <laughs> several things. It, it could be several things behind that, you know, but they do have a lot of scandals in the church, a lot of scandals. Oh, yeah, and, um, oh, yeah. definitely. Well, this is kind of it's interesting not- because you were all set against the government yesterday. You are talking about the class struggle. What about the church as a government? What about the church as a corrupt entity? Are they not uh, taking all kinds of power and acting like a government? And where's our separation of church and state? Well, the, well, you know, the United States doesn't have a uh, – a state religion. So the United States is uh, mostly a Protestant country, and Catholics have always been viewed as the uh, outsider in the United States. We like see John that Kennedy when, too, and the Kennedy family. Well, well, you know that was when he was elected. There was a concern among people that he would be, uh, you know, he would be loyal to the Pope. But that was a religious prejudice that we had in this country. You know, you had prejudice against Jews, you had prejudice against Catholics, and so that's what that was. But we had no Catholic control in the United States because we have no state religion here. Now, in other countries, the church wields a lot of power in other countries. I thought a lot in America. <laughs> they, well, Maybe I'm confused. Take for example, you know? take for example, Take, for example, where I live. I live in New Orleans. So this traditionally mm-hmm. has been a Catholic stronghold because the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. they own a lot of property in the New Orleans area, but they don't pay taxes mm-hmm. on the property. So mm-hmm. the Catholic Church here has influence because many people have always been Catholic because of the French and Spanish colonial legacy that we had. So it depends on what region of the country and, like, Cities like New York and Philadelphia and Boston, where you have a lot of Irish, you probably had uh, influence. But for the most part, I, I would the Catholic Church hasn't had any any state influence in terms of uh, like a state religion, like it would have been in let's say uh, Spain or Mexico or or some other place. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute, Warren. Mm-hmm. You just told me yesterday all about Disney World and that special exemption. That's such a wonderful thing. Uh, and you're not complaining about the Catholic Church having tax-free property and having all the power they have. I'm, I'm just curious. <laughs> no, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't bragging about. I, all I was saying about the situation in Reedy Creek was that DeSantis is in a dilemma now because by threatening to take away that special tax status, that means that that's that's going to fall on the people in that district. They're going to have to cover the one billion dollars in taxes that that Disney World uh, contributes to in various services. So that's what I was yeah, saying. So they're, they're in a dilemma. 
Yeah, here's where I think you're wrong on that, though, because if a company moves, <clears throat> like when a company moves to China, you know, the residents of that community don't have to make up for the tax base. That, that's absurd. So if Disney World loses their special tax exemption, they actually have to start paying taxes that they're supposed to, or if they move or leave or do anything else, the people around that pay the taxes of a corporation when the corporation leaves. That, that doesn't make any sense. I want to see Disney World shut down, period. That's what Go I for it. See. Tell me why. Tell me why. They're child pedophiles. You're going to see it all coming out. They've been trafficking kids uh, with some of the producers, the people that work there. It is one of the biggest child trafficking in in in, in Florida, and the same thing in California. Yeah, they use they use they have underground. They they have a lot of stuff. And the next one shut down is going to be Victoria's Secret, <clears throat> because a lot of people feel disgusted now because the secret of Victoria is that most of the models are men. That's the secret. But anyway, a lot of these things I want to see them shut down completely. Yeah, child pedophile. If Disney was alive, he would be uh, <laughs> coming out of his grave right now. What the stuff that's going on? What do you think they have gay months, the whole month of June in Disney? That's for children. And now all this Nickelodeon, this thing with all these gay things, that the trannies, and they, they want to uh, uh, teach your kids all this stuff, and Disney's part of it. It's uh, it's it's sad. It's sick. Sick. I don't support Disney. I want to see them gone. <clears throat> Maybe somebody else can take over once they all go down. But that's what I want. Warren? That's what I want for Christmas. Warren, what do you think? Josie. Yeah. Josie. No veo noticias sobre la, el Papa renunció, pero no, no, no veo las noticias. Sí, están. He said he doesn't see the news about the Pope resigning. He, he, yeah, it was all over yesterday, actually. I, yeah. I just don't see it. That would be big news. I don't, I don't see it in the news. But it was. Well, let me tell you. Uh, I'm going to take a break here a bit, and then we'll get our, 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 our one, you know, a new, uh, a new guest on the show here. But um, Rand Paul made a comment earlier about this latest $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill that this is trying to, uh, that the, the lame duck Congress is trying to lock the next Congress into. I don't think they are, because they can always change the bill as soon as they take office. But this seems to be, you know, surprisingly not in the news. It's another budget-busting, inflation-creating, massive mm-hmm. bill that Congress isn't reading, that they don't know what's in it. They're going to be asked to pass it at the last minute so the government doesn't shut down. It's the same old pressure tactics. It's, it's an insane way to govern. I, I was curious what you all... Uh, a thought of it because I have a bill that actually counted. I have two bills. One that would mandate a 30 day comment period for any budget bill over $100 million. And the second one is a constitutional amendment to take away the power of Congress to borrow money. Now, those are two huge topics for five minutes, but I'm just curious, you know, where we go from this $1.7 trillion bill and why nobody is talking about it as much uh, as all the other stuff. These, uh, this is the biggest issue. Bianchi? These tax increases is eating up the mandatory. Minimum wage. It raised wage to fifteen dollars. Well, that's eight up. Twenty dollars. That's eight up. Hmm. These the spending that Congress has imposed has got to be paid one way or the other. And I agree that they need to have their wings clipped with their ability to borrow money. You borrow money on the future backs of U.S. citizens. They got to pay for that. 
Yeah, that's a question I was going to ask Brianna today, but we'll get to it another week. But uh, let's get Josie Warren's opinion on that. Um, one of our strongest bills right now here at Action Radio, and you can find it at writeyourlaws.com, W-R-I-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-S, writeyourlaws.com, is a bill that's a constitutional amendment. It's very simple. Let me bring it up here real quickly. It basically says, well, I just happen to have it. Oh, I don't have it right there. Anyway, it says that Congress shall no longer have the power to borrow money. It's right there in Article 1, Section 8. <laughs> very simple, very straightforward. Now, here it is. Found it. Uh, so this is Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution shall be amended by striking Clause 2 to borrow money on the credit of the United States. Section 8, Clause 1 shall be amended by adding at the end, and Congress shall have no power to borrow money on the credit of the United States, nor to print money to cover expenses greater than revenues. Warren, what do you think? Yeah, well, that's uh, that, that's pretty interesting uh, what you read in relationship to the to the to the issue you you brought up. Were well, you for it or against it? Uh, you know, I you know a lot of times what we're told how this stuff happens, we we really don't know how this goes down. You know, when they say about they're yeah, borrowing money. Yeah, we do. They borrow money without knowing what's in the bill. It's been reported all the time. Nancy Pelosi even said you have to pass the bill to find out what's in it. We know exactly how this works. I'm against it. I'm against it because a lot of this money is for their bank accounts because a lot of these people, they lost a lot of money when Russia froze a lot of their bank accounts, so they're desperate, all of them. So are you against the amendments? Are you against Congress borrowing money, or are you against the $1.7 trillion spending bill, just to be clear? I'm against the spending, yes. Okay. Yes. okay. I'm just against that out there. All right. Yes. Now, the question is, what percentage of the national budget of spending takes up a large chunk? And that's defense. If they just passed the eight hundred and something billion dollar uh budget for the military. You know, and so uh I'm against all of this spending for the military. Where you have So you're other... for wait a minute, hold on more. So you're for the one point seven trillion dollar spending bill on everything who knows what's in that, but you're against the eight hundred billion for our defense. I just wanna uh, get that out. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. You know, uh the 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 interest on the debt in four more years would be greater than military spending. But but what people don't understand is the United States, nobody could force the United States to pay their debt the way the United States and the EU can force other countries to be responsible for their debts, such as to the IMF or to the World Bank. So no, there's no entity that could hold the United States accountable for their debt. So they just could choose not to not to pay it. Well, the IMF and the World Bank, if a nation borrow from either one of those countries, they have to put up collateral, and usually the collateral are some form of natural resource. Right, right. they have to give up some of their sovereignty in order to get a World Bank loan, IMF loan. They have to give up things like the the state assets and stuff like that as qualifications. Or in the case of African countries, 
one of the preconditions is not to even grow food. You don't grow wheat. Buy our wheat. Buy the U.S. wheat. So don't grow wheat. We want this loan. That kind of foolishness. Oh, this is no fun. Warren, you're much more combative yesterday. This is kind of tame. What happened? What do you mean combative? <laughs> I know. We, just, we were kind of going crazy yesterday. It was kind of fun. We were talking about a particular, a particular issue as it relates to uh, – oh, we were talking about what the term free market really means in economic terms. That's what we were right. going back and forth, and I had to share it with you. Uh, the great economist Michael Hudson, who's an economist and economic historian, you know, who shares. Okay, let's let's take that one up again. I want to get you back on that. That's a fascinating topic. But I got a guest coming on who's new to the show. I want to play a couple things real quickly here. Hey, okay, nice we'll talking be... to everybody. Got to go too. Okay, uh, hey, Josie. Wait, 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 let me say. Wait, wait, let me say one more thing, Josie. Josie, let me say one more thing. Yeah. No, I did read where the Pope said he had a resignation letter in the event of bad health. So he had a letter okay. already prepared in the event he gets real sick, a resignation letter. That's what that is. Nah, he's not real sick, but it's okay. All right, nice uh, to okay. everybody, Chico. God Thanks, bless Jesse. you. Que Dios lo bendiga. Ciao. Okay, gracias. Ciao. Greg Penglis here for my book, The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction. Everyone at some point in their life wants to learn how to fly. Few try. Even fewer go on to get a license. I believe a major reason for that is how we teach people how to fly. My book is designed to help you navigate the flight training system, but it's so much more than that. It really describes an entirely new way to teach flying. So if you've never tried a lesson or got discouraged in your training and quit for any reason, this book can help you. Don't be a rope pilot who just follows procedures. Be a thinking pilot who makes great decisions, who understands all the reasons why we do what we do. You can incorporate these principles into your own flight training at any time. The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction is featured on the Action Radio with Greg Pankless Facebook page and is available from Amazon.com. Do you know your way around healthcare, insurance, pharmacies, surgery, alternative treatments and choices? I don't. Which is why I'm so glad I met Priscilla Romans, had her on Action Radio, and learned about health patient advocacy. She is the founder of Great Care. And now as an affiliate of Great Care, we are proud to offer through our discount code, WYL, which stands for Write Your Laws, a 10% discount. Great Care saves you both time and money. They provide medical advocacy, consultation, advice, and recommendations nationwide. Their website is greatcare.com. That's G-R-A-I-T-H care.com. You can email them at greatcare.adm at gmail.com or call them at 469-864-7149. That's 469-864-7149. Great Care, better health through better knowledge and advocacy. Action Radio, part of the ADHD Radio Network, the ultimate free speech zone. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed and have the power through juries to nullify the laws by which we do not consent to be governed. At Action Radio, 
We don't report the news. We are the news. Every other show reports what has happened. We talk about what can happen. From the questions no one has thought to ask, to the answers no one has thought to consider, to the actions no one has dared to take, that is Action Radio. I see some static on that particular one. I might have to record that one again. <clears throat> anyway, um, I'm searching Facebook, and I'm just kind of puttering around. I'm looking around for things to see what's, uh, what's on, and I come across this beautiful horse picture. I'm thinking, wow, this is cool. I've ridden horses a couple of times, uh, one time on the beach with my daughter, uh, and I'll tell Candace about that in, in a little bit as we get to talking. But I thought, wouldn't these be cool folks to have on the show? And I'm looking, and they're in Milton. <laughs> they're, they're, they're right here. So not only is it going to be cool to have them on the show, um, I want to, uh, you know, I want to go there myself. And so I thought uh, one of the things we haven't done for, you know, I don't think we have done actually, is a show talking about horses. America has a love affair with horses. We have westerns. We have uh, we have cowboys. You know, the people are still watching them. Uh, Pianki was mentioning, um, you know, Bonanza earlier. So I thought it'd be really cool to have Candace on to give us uh, her take on how she got involved in horses and the whole thing about uh, uh, the, the place she, she I what to call here. Let me see. Oh, she'll tell us in a second. But let's see if I can actually write this, do this accurately here. Where did I put it? Ah, here we go. Believe the journey, horse services. And so we'll find out about that. Anyway, let me give her a round of applause here and welcome her to the show. Hey, Candace. I'm on my cell phone. Hey. The blog talk kicked me out again. We, I got to I got I to talk to him about that one again. Once again, that's why I don't sound like a my my great normal voice on the microphone. But uh, yeah, I had to call him too. <laughs> How you doing? Well, I'm doing good. How are you? Uh, we're having a great time. We've got uh, a couple folks here. We've got uh, Pianchi. We've got uh, Warren, uh, and we'll get to them in a little bit as we get going. But I want to hear from you first and, and find out uh, the story. Uh, we'll start there with the thing I was talking about. America really does have a love affair with horses, don't they? Absolutely. Way more than what I imagine. Um, you know, as as far as, you know, for me, myself, my story was, you know, from a little girl, even though I didn't necessarily grow up with horses, it's always been in my blood. I've always been a rider and I've always mm-hmm. loved horses. I mean, from the time that I could talk and that I could think properly, like it was horses. Um, I didn't get my first horse until I was 13 and he was a crazy unbroke 17 month old arabian thoroughbred and for the people that are listening that know anything about horses they're probably shocked that that was my first horse <laughs> with his personality wow. um but that was kind of the and i i still have him today his name is pistol um this is 15 years that i've owned him um and he kind of helped me start my journey through my training you know i i had a lot of people come into my life at that point to help me to guide me because other than the books and the stories and the friends that had horses, I didn't know much, you know, until I was 13, until I was hands-on with it. Um, and I always applaud the parents that, that take on that big scare of, hey, my kids have this crazy passion of horses, and we don't. And we don't really know where to go from here, but they want to see their kids <laughs> succeed, and they want to see their kids go through their dreams. And, and my mom, you know, at an early age, she got kicked in the face. And so that was a big scare for her. So I applaud her oh, for no. even allowing me to have that opportunity at that age. Um, and there was a lot of 
you know, injuries and a lot of tears and a lot of sweat and a lot of blood <laughs> that was shed um, through that. But it, um, you know, the horses have really kind of came into my life and has just, you know, consumed me really. And I, doing this trail riding business, like I get to see so many people come in that, you know, as a child, that was kind of their dream too. They, you know, they loved the horses or they had, you know, they had memories with their horses or friends' horses. And then they come to me as adults and they're like, we haven't done this in 20 years or 40 years or even 60 years. And to kind of just see the expression come back on their face and they, them to relive the memories of being a child and going out there and being one with nature, like it, it's an amazing opportunity and it's, it's such a blessing for me to allow others to share my sacred place um, and to share it with the horses. This is great. I'm just writing some stuff down here. This is fascinating. Um, because yeah, I mean, for anybody that has a passion, they're very similar. I discovered airplanes at five years old. Uh, I actually yeah. got to go on a Vickers Viscount from Toronto to New York. I was born in Toronto. And ever since then, it's been airplanes. Wow. Uh, and I liked yeah. it before. I used to watch it as like a four-year-old. But I knew. And uh, one of my hopes here at Action Radio uh, is that it can generate enough so I can buy my own jet and do loops and rolls, you know, over the Gulf of Mexico. Because we're both in Belgium. Yeah. So, uh, I'll, I'll trade you. I'll trade you a horse ride for a jet ride. So we'll, yeah, uh, absolutely. We'll, so we'll share passion. <laughs> um, do you find that though that yeah. the people that are passionate about anything, uh, especially if your parents, you know, you're, I think you're lucky enough that your parents let you do it because there's millions of people mm-hmm. whose parents say, "Oh, that's a stupid idea," or "That's a that's a terrible right. idea," you know. And you didn't have to face that, which is good. Or did you? Was it was some objections, or they just they were cautious? Oh, or yeah. How did they treat? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I probably asked for a horse or a pony from the time I was two years old. And, um, you know, the funny thing is the first thing that I ever got to ride was a cow um, with my grandfather's friend, Mr. Floyd. And I mean, <laughs> it was like the most like I was just so excited. I was up high. I was on something and I was connecting with the animal. And, um, you know, I was rejected every year. I mean, I think I asked for horses for my birthday, for Christmas, for any special occasion, or even when my parents were asking me what I wanted to eat for dinner, I was like, I just want a horse. Like, that's what I want, you know? Um, <laughs> so dinner, the rejection the was there for, for 13 years, uh-huh. and I play with people all the time in a joking manner when uh, when I have families with kids come, and, I, and they're like, we want a horse. And I tell them, I said, y'all might want to get one now, because as they get older, they're going to have more than just one horse. <laughs> you know, I have um, personally, right now, I got 13 horses, and I board three, wow. and I've kind of always, you know, from the time I was 15, I was working at different barns, or I was hands-on with other people's animals and horses, and um, I spent 11 years at working at a vet clinic. Um, I made my way all the way up to a hospital manager, and it was not until I um, I went to Loretta Lynn's ranch, actually, in Tennessee, And I was there for a whole week, and I was riding, and halfway through that, I was like, you know what, like, I need to come home, and I need to ride my horses. That's what I need to do. I need to not be a hospital manager. I need to ride my horses, and I need to share this with people. And so that's kind of why I named it Believe the Journey. I was going through, at the time, you know, a connection with myself, and even though I had a career set, and I thought that was what I needed to do it just wasn't in my heart and so I'm glad that I took that leap of faith and um you know there is kids out there that are going to get rejected you know probably until they're adult so that they can make that decision of their own but as long as they keep to their dream and they know that that's their passion you know the time will come when it's when it's ready you know and same thing for me the time came when when it was ready if I would have had 
horses as a child. I probably would have had broke horses that were already safe, and I wouldn't have learned the training aspect or the connection on the ground like I have now, um, or even through the rescuing processes of the abused horses and the emotional, you know, the horses that have went through, you know, home to home to home that emotionally has been traumatized to the ones that have came to me that's won a quarter million dollars on the racetrack that couldn't even walk off the trailer when I got them, you know, things of that nature. If, if, if I didn't get a horse when I did at that certain time, I wouldn't be where I am today, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. I'm really glad that that, uh, that we connected when I got you on the show. This is fascinating because uh, people don't think about that. You don't, you know, you don't have many news, you know, programs, you know, talk about this. But this is our soul. This is this yeah. is this the connection here. Uh, well, tell me about that. This, 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 a horse is more than a horse. It's not just an animal. I mean, there's there's Correct. a serious connection that uh, that you have uh, with the horses. And well, tell me about that. I'm curious. <laughs> well, some people might call me the horse whisperer if you hear my family talk. And I mean, I. I joke on it, and I've had a lot of my clients, especially during the COVID time, that people were like, oh, my God, you're Amy off of Heartland, because Heartland, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that show. It's a show based out of Canada, but, um, you know, in, in watching that show myself, um, you know, I could see a lot of reflection of how she felt, and they really captured it so well. They captured, you know, it, they didn't capture it like most movies and television shows where it's not, it's, it doesn't feel real. And that show really made it feel real. And, you know, going out and doing my trail rides and my lessons and my therapy sessions, like that's, that's the main thing. I want to people, I want to see, I want people to see the real aspect behind it. And I want them to see the spiritual connection that I have with it and, and the magic that goes behind it. And a lot of it is based on your, based on your energy and I know that sounds so weird and some people look at me not like on this I'm show. crazy you really it really is based on your energy and and when you can find yourself within a horse it's the most magical empowering feeling when you connect to them you know a lot of people say gosh you're like the puzzle piece when you're when you're on your horse or or the people that come to me that I can tell are in tune with their energy they're like man, your horses just, they, you know your horses and your horses know you and, and y'all just, y'all fit the piece, you know, and, and it is. It's such a magical feeling and it's not something that I think within us can explain to people that don't have it within them. Um, it's just that feel. It's just that passion and that dedication and spending hours and hours with those horses and connecting them. And, and not only just horses, it's, it's with other animals as well. I mean, I... I um, rescued my dog, Traveler, which if you've been following my Facebook page, I, that's like the love of my life. Only my recently. Other you know, yeah. I just discovered um, what, three days ago? <laughs> and here you are. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, okay. This has been pretty <laughs> yeah. quick, yeah. So, that's okay. So Traveler, Traveler is my, I call him my trail boss. He's my dog. I found him in a garbage bag thrown out on 4th of July. Oh, wow. And from the time he was five weeks old to now he's about a year and eight months. Um, he has been with me throughout my whole journey with the horses, and people love it. People see the connection that I have with him and the connection he has with me, as well as the connection that he has with the horses. I mean, we go on trail. You'll have to come out because when we go on trail, he oh, checks on each one that. of my horses. <laughs> yeah, he, he, checks, he, on, he checks yeah. on the people, yeah. and he leads the trail, and he keeps us safe. Um, and it's just cool to have people come out and see that connection and have them believe in it. 
You know, it's so enthusiastic. Oh, we're talking about this. Your enthusiasm, your spirit for this. It, it's really contagious. And I've got, uh, I got Warren and I've got Bianca in the line. I'll, I'll invite them on in a little bit here, but I want to talk to you a little bit more myself. Um, because you, you mentioned some, well, the, just like I say, it, it's infectious. It really is. Because what you believe, I can see other people believing. And even if they're skeptical when they show up, they're going to leave mm-hmm. you know, knowing more than, um, they're not just there to ride a horse. They're there for an overall experience. Right spiritual experience and emotional experience. They're there to yes. let go of their misconceptions and, and go into a world of, of something that I think we've lost in this country a lot. Uh, when I think yes. of, I, I bike ride a lot. Like I bike ride all the time. So the, the closest equivalent for me uh, is that until I hop on the horses and, and so you teach me how to do this again. Uh, yeah. But what's interesting is I, I did a video of an armadillo and I spent like two, two minutes or so and I watched it for about 10. I did this, this video, and there were there were two kinds of folks reacting to it. There were those that said they have leprosy, they're pests, they'll dig up your garden, they're they're terrible. I'm like, don't oh, go away from me. And the other folks were, mm-hmm. this is a cool animal. I've never really stopped to look at one. I've never seen them up close, kind of thing. So it's fascinating the reactions. And I imagine horses are the same way. Ah, mm-hmm. they should be pulling a wagon or at the racetrack or something like that. But you, mm-hmm. it's 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 so much more. And do you find that the, people go through a change? You know, with with you one time or several times, do you do you see this oh, like yeah. the uh, this is a rhetorical question? Well, tell me about the change that you see. What what uh, no names or anything, but what's what have you observed of people? Oh my goodness! So I mean, I do have a lot. I mean, I can say probably seventy five percent of my people come back, um, whether that's once a year or every month, um, and just seeing them come back to and and I guess it. it goes to like our rush society and coming out and being able to just relax and and take in the nature and really you know breathe and connect and be one um Mm -hmm. and there's you know one of my first one of my first clients really really hit me hard you know I I kind of second guessed her when she came out the first time I was like oh I doubt she'll come back out you know um and being a hospital manager I've learned to really read people and I'm a Pisces and an empath so it kind of comes with nature uh but uh you know, I really I misjudged her on the first. And then as soon as we got done that day, she was like, I want to, you know, I want to come back out. And, and so she did. And, and then again, and then she brought her whole family. And after about the third ride, she came up to me and she was like, I just really want to thank you. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I love the fact that you're coming out here and I get to watch you grow. You know, I get to watch people reconnect with their souls and reconnect and learn new things and get more comfortable with the horses and connect with that certain horse. Um, you know, but one of the biggest things was like for her, it was a fear of being out in the woods because of a traumatic incident that happened with her ex-husband, which could have cost her her life. And to know that um, my horses and myself have allowed her to get through that trauma in her life was just like huh. it brought me to tears and it still brings me to tears because it's Aww. I'm doing such a simple thing I feel like but it's such a magical thing at the same time so just allowing people to get out and and just breathe and relax and not think about oh my god well I don't know some of these people they might be losing their home or they might be losing a family member or they might be just in their mind and and so lost I had a gentleman um that really is special to me he uh he came for a brief time you know he ended up going back um he lives out of state but you know by the end of it after him coming multiple times he was like I just I have to admire you for you following your dream and you really helped me get back into you know what my life meant to me instead of somebody else and you've just helped me 
you know, you've pushed me over to, to really do what I need to do and, and to enjoy my life again. And so I get to help people simply by just allowing them to come and, and talk with me and allow them to come and connect with the horses. So it's, it's the most, it's probably one of the most rewarding feelings I've ever felt. You know, it's fascinating what you're talking about here. You mentioned uh, uh, therapy sessions. So you actually mm-hmm. are a horse therapy. Uh, but it's for people, not horses. We're, we're talking about for, for people. It, it's actually a, a, a therapy that's, whole, that's probably a whole lot better than sitting in an office, you know, saying, well, yeah. how do you feel about this? You know, I've never been a big fan right. of uh, therapy. It never quite made sense to me. I always figured you go do something. With me, I'd go uh, the shooting range. I, I, you know, when I could, right. and I want to get back into flying airplanes. Uh, sailing boats. I used to race sailboats with a friend of mine uh, in Marblehead back in Massachusetts. So there's like this zone oh, wow. I get into. So your zone is horses. My zone, I also play music. So I, you know, I play a pretty wild electric guitar. And all these things are these zones, these, these places that we go. And I think we're losing a lot of that now in this sort of mm-hmm. computerized phone video game, especially with the younger folks. Oh, yeah. do, you, do you notice differences? And yeah. tell me what you tell me what you've noticed. I mean, I can tell you, generationally speaking, I'm 28, and I can tell you 90% of my my clients are people over my age, um, and it it is sad. And so I do try to promote um, I do try to promote the younger generation because it is it, we are losing it. We are losing the simplicity of being outside. You know, people don't go barefoot anymore. People laugh at me when I walk the trail sometimes and I walk it barefoot and they're just so like, they're like, what, why is this wild child doing this? And people are losing that connection with nature. They're losing that connection with their own spirit. And um, it hurts me, you know, like it hurts me to know that we're, we're stuck. We lose so much of our mind because we're tall. Hey, well, let's just play on the video games or let's just, stay on the computer and watch TikTok all day. And yes, there's information through it. And I I love the opportunity that we have things such as podcasts and such as social media because it it helps us. But at the same time, I think it can hurt us just as much. And, um, you know, I've I've had a couple people come to me that were younger than me. Um, Another one that kind of came in my life briefly, and he also moved out of state. Um, And he just, he showed up. He was like, listen, I was born and raised in the city. I didn't find horses until I was down here in the military. And I know for a fact that I'm a rider and I'm supposed to be on a ranch. And that's my goal. I want to be out west and I want to be on a ranch. And I just need your help in getting me to that, you know, by allowing me to be with your horses and learning what you do. And I am inspired by stories like that. And I want to push those younger, that younger generation to succeed there because, you know, I kind of started the same way. My parents you know, they didn't realize this is what <laughs> what I was going to be. And if I didn't have that support from them, I wouldn't be where I am today. So for the generation that's younger that just wants to take that dive and say, you know what, like, I know this is in my heart and this is what I'm supposed to do, and just take that step and do it. You know, believe in yourself enough to do it. Um, and, and sometimes it takes that push. You know, a lot of family that comes out um, – you know, their kids might not have even been introduced to a horse, but at the end of it, they're like, man, I want to do this more often. You know, so not very often do I see where they come out and they've just had a miserable time and they're like, I'm never going to ride a horse again. I've seen mm-hmm. more people come out and they're like, oh, my God, like, I never realized this could be such a thing. I mean, even people that well, never rode horses. But all the, look what they see. They see movies. They see you know, cowboy stuff, mm-hmm. they see sometimes impossible things, or they'll see, like, big horse races. I mean, there was the Vigo, mm-hmm. what's-his-name, 
did that, that huge race across uh, one of the Arab countries. I mean, there's some fascinating things. Um, movies, mm-hmm. Seabiscuit. You know, there's a great yeah. story. Uh, the yeah. movie with, uh, what's his name, Spider-Man. <laughs> and, um, but, yeah, there's the – well, well let's, let's do that. And I, want to, I, want to, I have one more question about your, uh, how you created this whole, this whole place, uh, the, uh, Believe the Journey uh, Horse Services. Yeah. I want to find out about that. And then I want to open up. We've got Warren and Napanka. I want to see if they have a question for you. But the horses portrayed movies. Do you go crazy when you see a Western and just like, no, that's not how it works. What are you doing to that horse? How dare you? <laughs> You'd be like the worst person to watch a Western with, I have a feeling, but I'm just curious. (laughs) I mean, I love my Westerns, and I I grew up, I, you know, I I watched a lot of Westerns because that was a, you know, we grew up in the country, so my grandfather, even though he didn't have horses, you know, it was, when we went to my grandparents' house, it was a Western show. Um, Or if I was watching it with my granny, it was a talk show. But, um, you know, as an adult and going through the journey and, and, reading horses more now emotionally um watching those types of shows and those types of movies um when i'm really in tune with it yes there's times that i'm like oh my gosh you know like ah you know but at the end of the day i know that it's movies and i think the concept behind it because i have people come out and they're like oh i've seen it on tv i just want to run the horse and i'm like no no we can't just run the horse like it's this is not a movie this is a communication factor with my horse <laughs> you know like it's a real it's animal. So it's living and breathing. On TV. <laughs> yes, yeah. You know? So yeah. there is some contradictory to the story behind it because some people, and again, like COVID with Hartley, and people seen that, and then they researched, I want to go riding, and so that that show inspired people to get out and ride. But the way that particular show inspired it was a lot different than you know the Western, like oh my gosh, I want to run go ho and through the water and you know rope this cow and all this fun stuff. And I mean, there is part of me that wants to get more into a Western fill. And um, I actually, hopefully by next year, I will be planning some pack trips and I would like on a journey for my spiritual connection. So a pack trip is like a through hike, like kind of like backpacking, but you do it off your horse. So I'm going to start in one location and hopefully make it, you know, my Longest journey that I'd like to do is probably going to take me about 8 to 12 weeks to do it. Um, but there's also a couple of trails, like Pacific Quest Trail, um, some of the Continental Divide there and um, out west. You know, I, I want to get deeper into my connection spiritually and really get back to the simple ways and learn all of my senses and do that not alone, um, per se, as far as having my supporters and having people around me but alone as in you know what this is this is a dream of mine and i i'm going to pursue it and i'm going to go out and i'm really going to dig deep and and share my story and there's a you know there's a story behind that as well from a little girl a man that i met that i actually just recently lost on november 23rd and he was actually on the jay leno show um his name was charlie bob martin um, and I met him right after I lost my grandfather, who I was really close to at the age of four. And Charlie Bob actually spent four years of his life living on the road with his mules, his mules named Ella Lee and um, his dog named Dylan and Magoo. And, and he just, he kind of spread the word, you know, he did shows. His, his mule would lay down and they would cover up together. And he, he rode across the Golden, Golden Great bridge there in san francisco and that's where he met Daylino. and um he's always been an inspiration to me and 
Um, like I said, unfortunately, we lost him November 23rd, but I um, I inherited his mules that he's born and raised, Ella um, Lee, his famous mule. Um, but there's, you know, it's just little things like that that inspire other people to complete their journey, um, and I'm grateful for it. So I want to be one of those people. I want to help other people, you know, inspire their journey and really push them to do what they need to do. Yeah, I was going to say you're the dream inspirer as well as the horse whisperer. This is incredible. I got some questions. I'm going to, uh, uh, I would go to let me see if Pianchi or Warren has a question for you. I have several more, but I figure if I monopolize the whole conversation, then we'll, we'll, the hour will be out and then we'll be all set. Pianchi, do you, do you have a question? No, for I have no. I have no questions. Okay, Warren. Yes, I want to say that uh, to your guests is very interesting. I I live here in New Orleans and. Uh, my son and daughter have horses. They have Tennessee walking horses. And yeah. here in New Orleans, now, my grandfather was from one of the rural areas outside of New Orleans. And my grandfather, prior to coming to New Orleans, that was his job. He he uh, he, he broke horses because th- that was very a low-level job. But yeah. what I wanted to say was, in Louisiana, in the rural areas, it is very popular, particularly among African Americans, they have trail riding associations. And yeah. so we have what they call trail rides. It is very, very fun. It's generally mm-hmm. a two or three day affair. On a Friday you have the your trail riding association has a, a dinner, they prepare a dinner and then on Saturday they have a dance and then on Sunday is the trail ride. Even the local police departments are carted off the road. And then when the trail ride ends, there's a big party. In fact, if you go on YouTube and type in Louisiana trail rides, you'll see basic videos of African Americans, and that's an image that very few people know about. That in the rural area, trail riding associations are very common and popular in the rural areas here in Louisiana, even extends to Texas, that you have this take place. Yes, and so the uh, huh. many people have horses. Beautiful ladies come out there with trailers and their horses. <laughs> Everybody's wearing cowboy boots and cowboy hats. And it's been about <laughs> two years. It's been about two years since I've gone to a trail ride. But my son, my daughter, they often when they come back in town, they'll go to the trail ride because their cousins have uh, keep their horses at his stable. And so uh, it's it's a, a very interesting. I mean, ever since I was a kid, my grandfather would, uh, he would bring me out to where he was from around the area called Opelousas. And then they were, that's, that was the whole culture, cows and horses. Because Louisiana yeah. has that, Louisiana has that uh, Western, that uh, Western type culture like Texas does when it comes to horses and cattle. Yeah, we don't think of that because we think of New Orleans as like, you know, French culture and uh, then, of course, New Orleans jazz and everything else. That's interesting. I'll think back to Candace for a second. This, uh, just, uh, that, Warren, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I love stories like this. But, Candace, there's a whole world of horses that people don't know about. There's trail rides. Oh, yeah. We're talking about uh, extended camping trips uh, and all these different mm-hmm. things going on. What uh, is the horse world just not – reaching out to as many people do you want to keep it with people that really more know what they're doing what's 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 the uh what's the story on, on the things that we don't know about it so and and horse people are i mean 
when you're in the normal population and people hear that you're a horse person, it's, it can be traumatizing. And I, I don't really know the reason, the reason behind it. Um, you know, I going through this process and opening up my barn and my sacred place, um, you know, horses are living and breathing and there is things that can be created, can be a learned behavior. So it is a constant thing that I have to continue working on my horses because it's not like a car. Like it's not, it's not something I can crank up every day and drive the same way. You know, these horses have a mind of their own and they are smart and there is things that you not knowing not being a horse person can actually teach that horse how to do, which can result in injuries and can result in bad behavior. Um, and so I think some of it is, you know, horse people, they know the amount of blood, sweat, and tears that are shed. And a lot of these horses are performance bred and they're here for a reason, um, a lot of, more for athletic reasons and performance reasons. Um, and then the liability behind it as well, you know, the fear of, you know, allowing somebody to get on my horse that doesn't know a a single thing other than horses are pretty um, and that they want to try this out. You know, it, it is a nerve wracking thing, but at the end of the day, I also look back at when I first started getting into the horses and some of the people that I met, I I don't, the society we live in is so judgmental and in the horse world, it's judgmental. You know, I didn't grow up with parents that had, $40,000 to drop on a trailer or $50,000 to drop on a truck. Like what I got was, you know, a $1,200 rusted out trailer that it had good floors and we put new tires on it, but it wasn't the prettiest. And in the horse world, I feel like there's so much judgment and it bothers me so bad. Now in the trail world, I don't see Uh it as much, but when I was barrel racing, so many of those girls judged me. They didn't even know me. They didn't even take the time to learn who I am. So many people have judged me because I don't have 50 acres of beautiful grass or a cedar wooded barn with an AC and heater in it. You know, I'm just a typical person out there trying my best to work my way up and and follow my dream. And I, I didn't get lucky enough to start with the expenses of it. You know, I bought pistol for $250. And my mom told me at 13 years old, this is your responsibility. This is your horse. You're going to have to find the money to make make it happen, and you're going to have to go out there and feed it every day, and you're going to have to water it and take care of it. Um, you know, and and so, like, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, uh, what a big dog. But um, <laughs> but it, it's just judgment. I think a lot of people, a lot of horse people have moments where they're judgmental, and, and sometimes we just get in that zone and, just like some people are more animal people and don't have the personality that's needed. I can't tell you how many times people have called into me and they're like, I just want to thank you for being kind or for just getting back with me because so many other people just don't. And there's times that I'm running from, you know, 6 a.m. to midnight and people don't realize that that's how busy my life is. But at the end of the day, I'm not here to be rude to anybody. And if somebody wants to come and learn, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, as long as my number one rule is, is safety and, and respecting my horses because it's, it is a job for me, but it's not about the money. And it, you know, a lot of these horses have came to me traumatized and hurt from many what, hands. What are, and I don't want to ever what are, put what that are on doing? them. 
what are people doing to horses that they shouldn't be doing? I mean, why would you get a traumatized horse? Why, why, how, how does that kind of thing yeah. happen? Um, I guess. So this goes into that emotional connection that you have with them. Um, right. Traumatized emotionally, I've had horses that have just been broken, you know. They've been broken to the point where when you look into their eyes, they're just kind of soulless, and it's all because of, people mistreating them and people using them for money purposes and not for, you know, the, the purpose of that they are an animal and they have a spirit and they have a soul. Um, so traumatically going through the emotions of those horses that have either been fear-based trained or they've been beaten or they've been abused or they've been ne- neglected, like emotionally there's such a turmoil that I have to, I have to really work through with those horses to get them back to being okay for just anybody to walk up and say, Hey, um, so that, that's where the trauma comes in. And same thing with people, you know, the difference is they're big animals and people don't know how to read them. So when that horse is rearing up or, or lashing out at you, a lot of people are like, Oh, that horse is crazy. That horse is wild or that horse is, is just mean. And really there's, People don't take the time to think, well, what has caused that horse to do that? So. Hmm. Um, I was thinking you're doing that. Uh, it's got some it's interesting parallels to uh, flight instruction. I used to teach flying. Pianchi flies. Uh, Warren, I've never asked him whether he does or not. Uh, I'd be curious. But as an instructor, you know, we didn't put people immediately into an airplane unless it was like a demo ride or something like that. But if they're serious about learning, we talked to them for a while. And I always did mm-hmm. this. I do for, for most of my intros. I'd spend an hour, at least an hour with them on the ground, just talking about the airplane, what the controls did, you know, what, where the instruments are and things like that. And then we go fly maybe the next week, give them a chance to read up and study. <laughs> and that was always much more effective than just throwing people in. Do you, is there like an equivalent, like a horse ground school? Or, or do you have people get to know the individual horse they're going to ride? I mean, Spend spend you know half an hour with it before you even hop on, just getting to know that horse and and learning about the horse's history and personality and things like that. Is there is there any kind of equivalent like that to what we do in in uh, aviation? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I am not okay. somebody that just throws people on. I do give them the opportunity to meet them and I talk about them and I go over each horse's quirks and their personalities and a lot of times mm-hmm. through the trail I I discuss you know their story behind it you know. Um, similar to Ed Miracle, the thoroughbred that won the $260,000 and, and how he came to me in our first trail ride, he, what I would call jigging, which is almost like a, a pace where he was trotting. He, he basically wasn't walking with his head down. He was very high, high-headed, very jiggy, very nervous, um, anxiety-ridden, um, you know, and that was after six months of rehabbing him because he was 200 pounds hmm. underweight and he couldn't even walk. His, his feet had been messed up. Um, so I had to go through the corrective shoeings and the proper nutrition. And then I had to go back to, you know, the training aspect behind it of, Hey, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not on your back to run you or to race you or to push you through these jumps. I'm here specifically just to have a relaxing ride. And so teaching those horses that come from a performance based um, home, that they routinely are like trained like athletes, you know, to now is the time for you to relax and it's time for you to just keep that head down and your calmness within and just walk the trail versus, you know, some of these horses are trained to not, to not walk and to, 
you know, their purpose is I got to run as fast as I can around these barrels or I got to make this winning lap or, you know, things of that nature. And then asking them to come out and walk a simple trail ride with people that don't have much experience that can't communicate with them as I would be able to communicate them to them, you know, and, and so a lot of horses associate when riders get on that it's work. You know, I, I have a ex barrel horse that, I mean, in her younger days, I mean, when she was six months old, she was sold for $5,000 and that was her purpose was to be a barrel horse. I mean, she had maturity bloodlines. She should have made it in the world, but at the end of the day, her heart wasn't in it and her body just had been abused and that's what people were buying her for was, hey, she's got maturity bloodlines and this is what she was bred for, so I'm going to race her. But she wasn't happy there, you know, and she's actually one of my horses that I put kids on or that I put older older people on that haven't rode and she's so nice and so quiet. But at the end of the day, if you would have seen her four years ago when I first got her, when you couldn't even walk up to her on the trailer because she'd rear because she was so frightened about you and she couldn't control her emotions. Or when you would get on her, you couldn't control her. She'd bolt out from underneath you or she'd jump side to side. And so having horses that are broken that just use more of their think, uh, reactive side of their brain versus their thinking side of the brain and allowing them to come back to that thinking side of the brain, you know, that takes a lot of time, a lot of time and a lot of dedication and sometimes a lot of, a lot of like questions of, you know, what has happened to you in your life and how am I going to be here to help you to get back to where you can be a nice, calm, relaxed horse. Fascinating. Um, let's share the journey. Let's how you, how you created from the first time you got an idea for, for your own uh, place for horses and you to uh, believing in the journey to making the journey happen. Let's, let's hear that story. Well, um, you know, like I said, as, as a little girl, it was all, all about horses. And um, when I was going through school, you know, my initial, my initial thing was I wanted to be an equine vet. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to help horses in that nature. So um, after college, after college I, graduated, I graduated college before I graduated high school. So I did dual enrollment and I got my general AA and um, as soon as I graduated, I started working at Safe Harbor um, in Pensacola. And Nat Wait, and Gina were the doctors. Yep. I'm 28 now. I was okay. in college. I started my college degree um, in the 11th grade. So 11th and 12th grade, I was actually enrolled at PSC or Pensacola State College. Um, yeah, and then by the time yeah. I was... 18, I started my, my job at Safe Harbor, which wasn't a large animal vet clinic, but it was something to start with. Um, right. But throughout that process, I had horses, and I was always working at somebody's barn, or I was always doing, you know, I was. I started training horses besides my own, so Pistol was my first. Um, I got my second horse, who is my heart horse, Nakota, um, when I was 15, and I had to train her from the ground up. Actually, she was one of the first rescue horses. She was actually attacked by dogs and ran through some barbed wire fencing at the age of seven months old. And instead of the people that had her previous fixing her, they wanted to shoot her. So I got her from a man that rescued her out of that situation. Um, and then I started training her. And then the people across the street from me had some horses that were neglected and starved. And when animal control got involved, I took in one of the younger ones. He was my first horse that I ever sold 
and trained, and the people still own him to this day. Um, his name is Merlin. Um, and then, like I said, I worked through Barnes, and then I co-partnered with a friend and did trail ridings on the side um, for a couple of years. And all, all in the aspect of, you know, this is just going to be my side stuff, and then I'm just going to continue my journey of being an equine vet. Well, shortly after being in the vet world, that's a very hard world to be in. Um, it's very stressful. It's Why similar is that? to human. What, 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 it's just emotionally stressful. You know, again, these people aren't aren't in it for the money. We're here to help the animals. But emotionally, what you have to go through and the hours that you have to put in, it's just it's hard on people. You know, the amount of animals that come in and they're sick and you can't fix them and they have to be euthanized for the amount of animals that you watch from the time that they were puppies and kittens to to now they're 14 and 15 years old and you've had that connection with them even if it was once or twice a year but throughout it you build those relationships with not only the animals but with the people and then having to deal with the emotional crisis when they are sick and the responsibility of you're there to fix them and the responsibility of telling them you know, we can't fix them when it's too far gone. Um, emotionally, that that's that's hard. You know, it's hard to come home and sleep at night, you know, knowing some of those animals that you you just knew at the end of the day that they were going to make it, and unfortunately they didn't, you know, or, or just the fact that having to, having to make that decision and live with it um, was probably one of the hardest things for me, um, and then once I realized that I wasn't going to be an equine vet, um, I wanted to be a hospital manager because that was the next best thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And I love the fact, like, I I loved helping my team grow, and I loved, you know, being that go-to person when people needed help, Um, not only people, but when the animals needed help. So I, I got the chance to be the youngest hospital manager in a corporate um, position that ran yeah, 136 hospitals. Yeah, I was 20. Yeah, I started that when I was 23, and I ended it um, when I was 26 is when I stopped mm-hmm. being a hospital manager. Um, but okay. I was the top third hospital out of 136 hospitals in this region, and I was the youngest hospital manager to be doing it. Um, so wow. It was a hard. It was it was a hard choice for me to up and leave that. You know, I felt like I was needed there, um, and I felt like I could be the answer to to everything for that facility during that transitional time of going from being a mom and pop vet clinic that had traditions for thirty years to now we're a corporate facility and we're changing all of these. Um, these factors and making it more of a corporate-type facility. So there was a lot of breaking points for the team and for our clients, you know, our established clients of 20 and 30 years that didn't understand the the behind-the-scenes of it and what we were having to go through as well. Um, And it just it got to a point where, again, at the end of the day, what helped me with all those emotions was my horses and doing the horse stuff on the side. And it just was, I told myself I wanted to remain true to my heart and what was in my heart. And I don't really know the reason behind when I went to Loretta Lynn's and what really caused me to say, you know what, when I come home, I'm not going to go back to that. Um, It was a hard, hard decision. I 
cried on it, and I called each one of my employees when I got back into town and, and apologized for, for not, you know, being there for them afterwards. And each one of them told me, you know, we support you and we're happy that you're making this move. And and through that, a lot of them took the courage and they walked out the door. They took the courage to do what they wanted to do in their life. So it, it ended up being a blessing in disguise. But the reason I named it Believe the Journey is because it was just that. I needed to believe in my journey. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. So Loretta yeah. Lynn's was the hospital you were working at before? Loretta Lynn's was the ranch that I went to on vacation. It was right. the first vacation I took little manager, and I was there for seven days. And um, and that's kind of just where I was sitting. I was actually on my cot sitting underneath the trees by the creek, and my horses were tied to the tree. And that's when uh-huh. I just shook my head and I said I'm going to come home and I'm going to do this and so I called my husband and I said when I cut when I get back to Florida I'm not going back to safe harbor (laughs) and he was like okay and he said what are you going to do and I said I'm going to ride my horses and I'm going to allow people to come out and ride them and so that's that's what I did well, it's good that he's supportive. I mean, that uh, that makes a huge difference. Well, maybe I shouldn't assume. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm assuming he's a supportive. Okay, good. Does he ride too? I mean, do you? No, like, no, <laughs> he doesn't ride. He supports that's me, but he's not a rider, <laughs> and that's typical okay. in the horse world. You normally don't have both of them riding. Really? I would have thought yeah. that maybe a shared pack. Well, I, you know, like I say, I, you know, my ex was not into airplanes, and I was so. But that 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 happens yeah. a lot. So as long as you're you're free to pursue your passions and hopefully he has one that uh, uh that keeps him excited too because that'd be good for both of you it's you, you don't have to share mm-hmm. the same passion as long as you share that you have passions i think that's, that's right. pretty critical okay well tell me what you got out there so i wanted to so for my first time out there what am i, what am I going to find where where would we go what uh, what kind of trails you have with so sort of give me the the intro um before i get yeah. there because <laughs> you know i want to do that okay so uh, so, uh so i right now have quite a few locations that I'm working through on finding new trails. Um, my main one is there at uh, Cold, Coldwater Recreational Area. So it's a big campground there at Coldwater. Um, and they allow me to use it commercially um, to allow people to come on trail with me. So for intro people or their first time out with me, I will have us go there. Um, those trails are the they're actually horse marked trails and they're maintained by the forestry department there. Um, and it's just got a beautiful setup. Like I call it my home away from home. There's bathrooms there. There's the Creek there. There's paddocks for the horses. Um, so I actually drive to that location and I offer either a one hour or two hour trail ride. Normally my group that I can take out physically um, without having to have a second hand hauling horses, I can take out a group of four to five riders. Um, my one-hour ride is when I allow children between the ages of 6 through 12 on it. I allow up to two at that age, um, and I actually hand-walk beside them if they've never been experienced on trails or have got to experience trail rides. And then I also have a two-hour trail ride, and that is um, for riders 13 and older. And, again, I can do four to five riders depending on experience. Um and then there is times that I have my regular clients or I have my friends that have their truck and trailers and their horses. And so it might be a group of two of us or it could be a group of 10 of us. Um, it just really depends on that day. 
and I don't normally do more than four hours a day of writing. And then once you come out at least one time with me and we make sure everything's vibing correctly and you want to explore more, I also offer a four-hour trail ride. I also offer camping trips. I have camping trips out there at that location, as well as if you want to get more in-depth with the world um, and do more of an outdoorsy experience, I offer some packing trips as well for adults or riders 16 and older. Um, Once we get to that degree, those trails are more for advanced riders. We have a little bit more terrain, so we have to go and maneuver around more trees or we have more underbrush we have to go through or hills that we have to go up and down but um it's beautiful either way um and then when you come out you meet me we go over my liability form i go over um how i normally ride my horses and i talk about relaxation and the communication um, aspect behind working with the horse i don't ever say controlling the horse or because it's not you know education between you and that horse um, and then I go over their stories on who you're going to be on. And then I will have, I'll help you mount up and then I'll make sure your stirrups are all set and I'll make sure your hands are in the right place. And then it's pretty leader. I normally have two trail guides with me. I'm normally in the front or in the back and vice versa. Wow. This is fascinating. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, we should get a little uh, cold water. I'm not sure where that is because we, we're actually worldwide. I didn't want to scare you at first, but uh, oh, wow. we, we've, okay. we've been heard in over 50, over 50 countries. So just so folks know where we are. Uh, so I remember Milton, Florida is near Pensacola. And so cold water is, mm-hmm. is north. You're up near the Alabama line? Yes. or, or we're, Okay. All right. That sounds good. Yep. So you don't have the Alabama line. Okay, so you don't have a fixed location. You actually take your horses from your place to where the trail is, right? Mm-hmm. Is that how it works? Yep. So people couldn't just oh, yeah. visit, you know, oh, okay. And people can ride their horses or your horses. And, uh, okay, mm-hmm. this is fascinating. All right, well, let me open up again. We've got a few more minutes. Um, so, uh, Pianchi yeah. or Warren, if you have another question for, for Candace, uh, now would be a good time. And then we'll get our contact information. And I want to get you back in springtime. Uh, I imagine people yes. are going to ride more when the weather warms up a little bit. So we'll get you back. We'll talk about it. We'll give an intro. And then you can tell us. Actually, it'd be interesting to have you periodically check in just so we know what's going on in the horse world. Uh, you know, yeah. racing horses, you know, movie horses, anything, any topic in particular, how to feed and care for your horse, anything you want to do. We're going to talk more. This, okay. is, this is going to be fun. I don't expect this to be last. Uh, let's go, Warren. Warren, do you have a, a last question for uh, for Candace? Well, I just thought that uh, the whole conversation was very interesting and inspiring. And so I just uh, like to encourage you to keep up the uh, the humanitarian work. Thank you. See, that's something I never anticipated. This is why I love having people on, and we, we don't talk about this ahead of time. Um, but I had no idea the depth of this. I had no idea the emotional complexity of the horses. I had, there was just a lot of things, but and the, and the relationship that you have with the horse. So I want to explore that further. That's quite fascinating. So, Warren, thanks for, for joining us today. Pianchi, anything you can think of? Well, horses are beautiful animals, as is many. And it's always good to know that, uh, you know, I've seen some people that's involved in rodeos, Mm-hmm. And I wonder how that hobby, and I guess it is a business to a certain extent. I wonder if that's continuing to go on. But no, keep up the good work, and uh, I wish you much success. Thank you so much. Oh, I have a well, question. I, I have another question. I have yeah, a question. I don't ask about rodeos now that Pianchi's brought it up. Brought it up. But go ahead, Warren. Why don't you go first? Yeah, I wanted to ask. What do you do about uh, to the young lady? What do you do about wild horses? What parts of the United States are wild horses located? 
and uh, what is the government's position and use of, of a wild horses, horses that are not broken and roaming? That's a great question. So that's, that's a great question. So I actually have a couple of must, or I've rescued a couple of Mustangs, and I have one Mustang that I actually did my first clinic with. Um, I've taught him how to lay down. He bows. He smiles. He kisses. Um, and we're working on, on training him now how to ride. But Bureau of Land Management, BLM, is basically the government side of the wild mustangs. Um, primarily they're out west, but I've seen them come through the auction yards from California, from Iowa, Idaho, Nevada, Wyoming, Oregon, um, New Mexico. Um, and and there's not really – they do have to do the roundups because there's just no way of controlling that population. Um, unfortunately, a lot, a lot of mustangs end up in your government holding pens, um, and then they are kind of shipped across America to these auction events that they have. And there's some programs like the um, the Mustang Makeovers, which is really phenomenal that they have that out there where they basically assign you a Mustang and you have 100 days, train it, and then you compete it with it afterwards at a big show and then you can auction it off from there or you can choose to keep that Mustang. Um, There's not a whole bunch here in Milton, Florida that are involved, but we've had the last couple years we've had BLM actually come and bring a shipment of horses for us to adopt out here. And there's a couple other programs such as you adopt one and you get a thousand dollar incentive if you keep that Mustang for a year. They are titled, so they're not allowed to go into um, places where they ship to, like, Mexico and Canada, um, which is unfortunate. But, again, at the end of the day, there's there's really no way of controlling the population that we have for domesticated horses and wild horses. But, you know, I, I am fortunate that there is programs out there like the BLM that have the land, that provide the land, and that also have those holding pins. And, and for the, you know, the people that are trying to support that dream and try to keep that Mustang heritage alive, um, me as well, you know, that we, we try to do our best in helping with that population and helping them, the Mustangs get a good home or stay in the wild. Um, but that's, that's pretty much the gist of, of the Mustang heritage. And it's mainly out West. There is a couple feral populations also like in Virginia and there's, islands on the east coast that have the ponies and um, I actually got an opportunity when I was in Missouri to um, actually get a chance to see some of the wild mustangs that the locals there with they help feed and make sure that they're doing okay and they round them up once a year for their vaccines and and just to check them over but it's you know you don't hear about the mustangs in the Ozarks Um, it was it was such a pleasure seeing them on the side of the road but if I wasn't following them on Facebook, I would have never even thought that Missouri had wild Mustangs. And it's not a huge herd. It's just a herd of 12. But still the local counties there are involved to kind of help keep that culture there and to keep those horses there. Hmm. This is interesting. Um, a Mustang, is that a particular, is it an actual breed or is it just a, a horse or a horse population that is wild? That is living it's free more up there? of a horse population that's wild i mean a lot of the mustangs were rich back in the day it was originated by the spanish breeds that came over um throughout the years you got to think of all the horses that may have gotten loose or the domesticated horses that people have let go to run with them so it Mm -hmm. you can 
get one that looks more like an Arabian from the auctions. They have draft cross Mustangs, but at the end of the day, they're branded and they're classified as Mustang, um, which just initiates, hey, they, they either came from a holding pen born and bred or they were captured from the wild and brought into population. Hmm. Rodeos. What's, what's your feeling on rodeos? I love rodeos. Again, I, I wasn't grown up with it. I did do some barrel racing back in my day. I, I even went all the way to what's Martha that? Josie Clinic. So what, barrel what, racing barrel is where racing? For, you don't. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.